So, Freaks, it's your boy Marty Ben here to introduce this rip of Tales from the Crypt. The immense pleasure of sitting back down with our good friend Maddie Bazinxius from the Crypto Voices podcast from the CryptoVoices.com website that has uh, been tracking the global monetary base for some time now, for many years. Uh, he dropped the update for Q1 2021 this morning, and I was lucky enough to catch him literally minutes after he sent uh the most recent monetary based update out to the world to discuss it among many other things uh, why the detractors to this comparison to bitcoin are wrong mainly those in the mainstream who don't understand the difference between assets and liabilities on the central bank balance sheet so i think you guys are really going to like this beyond uh, the global monetary base we get into uh, metrics outside of inflation that probably uh, make more sense to pay attention to because they're more tangible and you know, inflation is very hard to measure at any given point in time. Again, because different humans have different preferences, prices react differently. People people have def- different baskets of goods. So one metric that we we talked about uh, for a bit in this episode, that I think you freaks should look deeper into, is comparing uh, how how much productivity a dollar gets in terms of GDP uh, today compared to years past. So I believe in 2000, um, a a dollar spent would get you $17 of GDP or invested would get you $17 of GDP. Today it's $3 around there. Uh, So the purchasing power in terms of productivity of those dollars is going down pretty significantly. Matthew explains it much more eloquently than I can. So Enjoy this rip. Always enjoy speaking with Matthew. Um, he's got a really interesting perspective, too, as he's over in Eastern Europe. We talk about the lockdowns and the authoritarianism around the world right now. So enjoy. This rip is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App, somebody stacks sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. They're on sale right now, too. One cuck buck is going to get you 2,057 sets. Last time I read this, it was like 1,700. Cuck buck's going a little longer than it did earlier this week. Uh, again, you can DCA into sats on the cash app. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Uh, you can buy as little as $1. You can set it and forget it. Uh, you can get the cash card, which is accepted anywhere. Visa's accepted. I just got my new neon one. I'm looking at it right now. I've got a little Bitcoin and lightning sign on it. It's pretty dope. Uh, what else do they have? You can invest in stonks if you want to. I haven't, haven't made you guys aware of that in quite some time. If you want to, you can do it. Um, yeah, check it out. Cash App. If you haven't downloaded it yet, make sure you do so. Use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to leverage Bitcoin's native properties, particularly their multi-sig properties, to bring a lending pr- platform to you freaks, you American freaks too. This is available to you. Most of the HODL HODL products are not, but this one is. Lend to HODL HODL is a new non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users globally, anonymously, and on your own terms. Again, if you're short funds, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, friends. Oh, we're mixing it here. If you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, you don't need to sell your Bitcoins. Get some liquidity by borrowing, using your Bitcoin as collateral. You, you put it in a two or three multi-sig escrow. You hold one key. Your counterparty holds another key. 
and huddle huddle is there to hold the third key. Uh, this is beautiful because you can always make sure that your your sats are not being rehypothecated. You put them up as collateral, you get stable coins back in return, and then you can go use those as long as you're paying back the loan. Um, you're going to be able to get your sats back at the end of that loan. If you're a stable coin guy, gal, and you want to get some yield on that, you can enter the other side of that market book, put your stable coins up to be lent out and get some yield on that. So go check it out. Create your offers and set your own terms at lend.hodlhodl.com. Again, peer-to-peer lending, borrowing between users globally, anonymously, and on your own term. Globally, it's open to you U.S. clients as well. Lend.hodlhodl.com. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. They just had a big announcement yesterday. They got a big uh, miner placement with MicroBT. So what's miners? They're going to have some of those coming in. Compass Mining is trying to get more individuals mining, and the way they do that is you go to compassmining.io, you pick a miner model, you purchase it, Compass gets that for you, then after you purchase your miner, you pick a hosting facility with competitive electricity cost, you, you figure out where in the world you want it to go, uh, at what price, uh, you pay for the miner, they get the miner, you pick the hosting facility, they plug the miner in there, and then they start streaming sats your way. Pretty beautiful. They want to get individuals into mining um, trying to make it as easy as possible. Compassmining.io, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Go check it out. Again, looks like they're going to have some micro BT, the What's Miners, uh, in stock coming up here soon. Last but not least, this is brought to you by our good friends at Brains. They got that weirdo, Edward Sinqueso. Kinketo. I don't like cheese. My name's Edward Evenson. Don't like cheese. He works at Brains. Brains OS Plus and Slush Pool have uh, come out with some updates. I mean, we've talked about this, but if you haven't heard it yet, Brains has a couple of major product updates that can make life much easier for Bitcoin miners, especially larger operations. If you're running Brains OS Plus firmware on your machines, they have a new manager software, management software, an online platform that enables miners to remotely monitor and manage all their ASICs running Brains OS Plus. This can help miners improve uptime and keep their farms running optimally without the hassle of needing to be there 24-7. Manager will always be free for Brains OS Plus miners, and they can connect an unlimited number of devices. Securing efficiency are top priorities with this uh, management system. Brains OS Plus use, manager uses Stratum V2 for smaller and less frequent data transfers with all ASIC configuration and telemetry data being sent via encrypted connections. This protects you against eavesdropping a man-in-the-middle attacks. Don't let somebody steal your hash. Make sure you're using this management software that leverages Stratum V2. For details on the manager and how to set it up with your mining operation, go to Brains, that's B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com slash blog, and check out the Brains OS Plus Manager Launch article. Again, that's Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Uh, on top of that, Slush Pool is also getting its first major update in the past couple of years, and we'll have some new industry-first features for Bitcoin mining pools. The update hasn't been launched just yet, but I can tell you that it's going to be uh, including an ultra-flexible payout system, customizable mining reward splitting, and best of all, dark theme for all you freaks who need dark theme. I'm one of them. Uh, for 24-7 hash rate monitoring, that's easy on the eyes. Follow Slush underscore pool on Twitter. That's at Slush underscore pool on Twitter to see the announcement when the pool update goes live. Enjoy this rip with Maddie Freaks. Uh, it's a good, really good one. Very smart, bright individual. Very dense economics talk in this episode, if that tickles your fancy, which I hope it does. It's important to know this stuff. Words matter. Words are important, Freaks. Understand the words. 
You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Boom. Maddie is anxious. What's going on, sir? Doing fine, my friend. Nice to be here, Marty. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, uh, we've had some great, great weather, actually, uh, in Eastern Europe uh, past week. But now it's uh, raining and probably will be for another two weeks. So I got to stay inside and work on uh, economic stuff. I actually just published the old monetary base. And it's good because, you know, I've been doing these audio compendiums when I do the the cube. The, the quarterly updates and you know they definitely get a bit dry a bit boring and it's either me talking to myself or me talking to fernando which is even worse <laughs> um hey it's good we've done it we i think we did it even last time or one of the last quarters and uh done it with a couple other people it's more enjoyable just doing this with uh as a pod well i feel honored i'm able to, to catch you literally minutes after you set out the q1 2021 update uh, Absolutely, man. let me pull it up here so for you freaks, we just jumped into this, having a powwow conversation for any of you guys listening uh, who don't know what we're here to talk about today. Maddie and Fernando at Crypto Voices have been doing a quarterly update on the global monetary base and where Bitcoin falls in, uh, in line compared to other base monies in the global economy. We've done, this is probably our third update episode, but for anybody new here, uh, this is one of my favorite update episodes that we do because this is just an infinitely fascinating topic and i think it is a signal in a world in which many people are trying to figure out what is the best thing to compare bitcoin to and i think maddie and fernando have, have really honed in on global based monies as as the perfect comparison um as i pull up this chart is there anything you want to add to to that Matt? yeah no that pretty much uh does it i think it's actually good to do it uh live on youtube because there are a lot of charts and you know just speaking over it on the audio uh forum only is not necessarily always uh the best so yeah it is very good i think to do this um uh you know do it do it this time of video that's cool um and yeah i mean this is something like i sound like a broken record for those uh loyal listeners of mine you know fernando and i we've been talking about this for four years, I mean, this is, as you see, it's update number 12. So this will complete three years of updates that I've done. Um, it's mostly me now. Uh, Fernando is, is uh, he, he's, he's focusing more on his uh, Portuguese audience, uh, Brazil, you know, Brazilian Portuguese speaking audience, uh, doing a lot of economic stuff these days. But we still talk about, you know, a lot of these developments and uh, jump, you know, you know, throw ideas off of each other. But yeah, we've been talking about it for years and years, and I think um, it's always a topic. It's a perennial topic on you know crypto Twitter or uh, you know in the media. Sort of you know what do what do these twenty one million units of Bitcoin? What do they compare to um, in the existing legacy financial system? Do they compare to gold, silver? How does it fit in? And so I didn't really see anything over the years that was. Um, doing the job. So I just thought I got to, I got to create one on my own. 
And, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm flexing a little bit there because I am proud of it. You won't find this anywhere. It's not in the IMF, BIS, uh, World Bank. There are no databases where they publish the global monetary base of all um, currencies. We do 30 currencies as the top floating 30 currencies in the world. Um, before I get into it, and I'll say it, I'm sure, well, later in the episode as well. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time on this, actually, uh, personally for the website. Uh, it's going to be majorly boosted. Um, ex- you know, those that are really interested this, into this will know it's extremely slowly loading website. I do a lot of these charts live, uh, like through Google Sheets, some of them, some of them through Excel. Like it's just, uh, it's a one man band doing a lot of this stuff. So I've got, you know, they'll be very interactive. They'll be very good uh, in the next few quarters. It's probably going to take a couple quarters still, honestly, but because there's so much data. I mean, I've been through like 55 balance sheets. This is the top 30. Uh, we'll keep it growing. And it's just, the point is just to really try to systematize. And, you know, these these supplies do exist. You just got to try to understand them economically, work through them. And then from there, I think, you know, you, you, you know, the dear listener or, or viewer, uh, Bitcoin fan or not, you can make your decision on like sort of what that means from there or what steps you want to take. But definitely, I, I think that Bitcoiners around the world have been like educating tons of people about um, finance and economics and personal financial sovereignty, as we all know. Uh, this goes from like the developer technical level to doing maybe a little bit more like economic stuff like we're doing. Um, you know, it's just uh, it's it's a great thing. And and that that I think that Bitcoiners like sort of uh, are always there with with hard facts and charts and graphs, uh, you know, no matter what you what sort of uh, fallacious claim you might make, you know, like olive oil standards or whatnot, you're going to get Bitcoiners <laughs> quickly swoop in uh, with the real numbers and just really, really, um, really, I provide, you know, a lot of hard data. And so that's what I'm trying to do here uh, as well. And then just to remind people again, why we call it the monetary base, that that's the one that compares to Bitcoin. The very first person in the uh, Bitcoin space to recognize this was the great Al Finney. Uh, did a post uh, on Bitcoin Talk way back in the day. Um, I've quoted it many times. Uh, many other people have quoted it many times. And I would say, again, not to flex too much, but I would say Fernando and I probably have been the most rigorous of this. Is like we've interviewed economists. We've asked them this question: like, is this the one? Do you think this is the supply that makes most sense? Um, why does it make the most sense? And yeah, so I, I do this in. A, one of these days, I'm going to have to stop doing these lengthy introductions about, you know, why, how, what is it? But um, I think at this point, you know, it's just people are still starting to understand Bitcoin, starting to understand its value, its value proposition. So um, you just got to keep explaining it at the beginning. So we're setting the stage, like we're, we're laying down the landscape. You know, we're in the arena here of uh like a financial asset that compares to bitcoin so that's called the global monetary base in the fiat world it's just two things it's the physical notes and coin that you uh know and love or hate uh you stick in your wallet the actual cash the actual currency units that each central bank produces they only the central bank produces this this is a centuries old thing they have a monopoly on the money supply and then the other thing is uh what you call the reserve account or the commercial bank uh reserve account with the central bank uh, that's kind of like a digital supply, I call it. Um, but it does, you know, we don't need a digital world for that to happen. The uh, back in the day, you know, pre-internet, you know, 
gold exchange standard. You can look at central bank balance sheets around the world. They still called it the monetary base. It was notes and coin in circulation plus the uh, reserve account, which is basically it's basically each bank's account with their respective central bank. So it's the end of the line. That's how banks settle among themselves. So you can think of it sort of as banking level and as a like we as a public level, like we as a public, the end of the line, final settlement uh, will always take place with these notes and coins. Um, it's also, you know, there's also other similarities, obviously, as we know, with Bitcoin there, they're freely floating, they're kind of anonymous, um, you know, even more anonymous than Bitcoin, uh, notes and coins, and and other things that, that uh, have similar characteristics as Bitcoin. And then, of course, the uh, commercial bank reserve account, that's how... Uh, literally the end of the line of settling in the banking system occurs. So at the end of the day, literally you have all these checks, Venmo payments, whatever, you know, we call those things money and they are in some respects, you know, they're money-ish type things, you know, moneyness is a term that Hayek used. Um, all of those things are used to settle debts all around the world all the time, but those are claims with each banking system, each, sorry, each bank in the banking system. And the only way that you can actually see, okay, where do those banks sit at the end of the day when you go up, 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 literally to the end is how do those banks clear with one another? Does one bank owe another bank, you know, 100 billion or whatever, and they net it all out. And that's that's where they net it out at the, uh, the central bank um, level. So that's that, again, would be analogous to the Bitcoin system. We're already having plenty of layers in the Bitcoin system. Um, whether it's it's lightning, which is unique in itself to economics and banking history, or whether it's simply exchanges, which are basically Bitcoin banks. Um, Hal Finney wrote about that as well. You know, we have exchanges with, you know, when you have the Bitcoin, when you, when you log on to an exchange and you see, you know, X amount of Bitcoin on your exchange dashboard, that Bitcoin is not, any Bitcoin worth their salt will know that that, bit, that Bitcoin does not belong to you. That's the exchange's Bitcoin. It's not yours, but that doesn't mean you have nothing. You, you just, you know, people don't ask, answer the second question. What do you have? You have a claim. So you have a claim on that Bitcoin, but that's not base money Bitcoin, then is it? So to find that base money Bitcoin, you got to go all the way back to the chain. You know, every 10 minutes, Bitcoin balances the budget. Every 10 minutes, uh, these, uh, you know, UTXOs, they're settling again and again and again. That is you know those bitcoins that you know would eventually be a little bit under 21 million uh bitcoins globally final settlement that's perfectly analogous completely analogous to what happens in the modern financial system today with what we call these bank reserves that's how the banks literally <laughs> the giants of the financial system uh banks and financial institutions how they settle among each other so this is why bitcoin is settlement media settlement money uh, and that's why it's, a, it's uh, compared to base money. So, well, <clears throat> before we jump into the update, Q4 2020 to Q1 2021, a lot has gone on. Uh, you've received some hate on Twitter from the the traditional financial media coming at you, particularly Francis Coppola and uh, our, our friend Joe Weisenthal, uh, saying that this is not the correct m metric to to benchmark Bitcoin um bitcoin with what would your uh, description of their argument be in your response to that argument yeah so uh i'm absolutely delighted that uh the more and more uh I post this the more and more uh you know just posting 
facts and data and numbers uh, triggers people in the uh, traditional financial uh, news arena, the traditional financial uh, marketplace, whatever you want to uh, call it. I'm absolutely delighted that it's triggering uh, more and more people. Uh, Miss Coppola, you know, she's not very uh, kind usually in her words to many Bitcoiners. I think many Bitcoiners will uh, uh, relate to this. I, I, I you know, uh, at one point she blocked me, then she unblocked me to talk about uh, how it wasn't right more. But she, she's never really given an argument. It's clear that she hasn't read anything of it. The only thing I can say that what she has written, the, the, the most hilarious one was, I don't think he knows what the monetary base is. And I mean, when you know, if you want to engage in real uh, debate, first of all, it's not going to happen on Twitter. Like, you're not going to gaslight me. Like, I, I do not. I just do not care uh, what you think uh, if, if you know, if you don't understand what it is. But just to say that I don't understand what the monetary base is, just to make that statement as like you're, you're going in argument when, you know, this is update number 12, quarterly update number 12. As I said, we've been talking about this for years, obviously. Uh, that doesn't really merit um, a response. And and based on what little I have read of what she said, it's clear that she hasn't read anything uh, that I have written about it. And so many, uh, many things would indicate that she probably herself doesn't understand what the monetary base is. So that would be her. Um, Joe is, uh, is funny as well. He uh, wrote an article after the uh, Q4 uh, 2020 was released, and I was speaking with Nick. Actually, did two shows with Nick. It was funny. One of them got lost, and then it wasn't lost, so he posted the original one. So it was a little bit late. It wasn't that long ago, maybe less than a month ago when he posted the pod. Like April 7th, I believe. Yeah, about a month ago. Uh, listeners can find it, but that was that was regarding Q4. We we recorded that actually, like uh, you know, start of February. It takes about a, a month to get to the full prior quarter you know of the data so so here we are in may talking about uh start of may talking about uh, q q1 uh in any event what to say about joe uh i should find the tweet i was thinking about it but i don't have the tweet well here's here's the the funny thing so i, I saw this a couple times i've engaged with him on it before um one of the going in arguments and also like this throwaway line uh, so he wrote a newsletter about it um, was that he doesn't see the value of the the exhibit because Japan is so high as far as the global monetary base comparable value. He doesn't see uh, the value of that. He thinks that it's kind of a worthless uh, comparison. Now he didn't he didn't go any further, but I, it's this is this is very curious to me because again you know this is someone who works for Bloomberg, uh, presumably, you know, understands how data driven a network it is. And so just to sort of, you know, shrug off, uh, you know, mountains of research facts, uh, inflation rates, um, we can, if you want to go to go to tweet, actually, let me, uh, let me find it for you really quick. Just go a couple, couple tweets down the first uh, picture will show you how big Japan's monetary base is. Uh, it's tweet okay. 10. It's tweet right. 10. I got Ju I got Joe's um, response up. Sorry. For yeah. And I, I can paraphrase it. It's fine. I mean, go to go to tweet. Well, I can't paraphrase all that actually, in fact, but I can I can I know the one of the main ones he was talking about. So there's so tweet 10 here. Uh, there we got the dollar, the UN, Chinese UN, the uh, European Euro and the Japanese yen. 
Uh, those are the four largest currencies in the world. Most people probably believe that and understand that. Uh, you know, it's not a surprise to them. And then the formerly Great British Pound is that lighter blue that's just uh, just above the Japanese yen. And then the remaining 25 currencies, the top 25 floating currencies in the world, are above that. So you see just the massive parade of distribution already just with that chart. But there have been many quarters where, uh, so actually, hopefully to please Joe, this quarter, the dollar is larger than the yen. So maybe he will, uh, maybe if he cares, uh, again, I don't care if he does, if he cares one way or another, but uh, the dollar is larger than the yen this quarter. So maybe he'll, he'll, uh, he'll think it's a bit more uh, valid. But as I understand, what he was saying was Japan since it has such a large monetary base, it's just worthless because obviously the dollar is the largest currency in the world. You know, a fact that I have repeatedly talked about again and again and again. I do it every, uh, I do it every uh, update, and I also do it with every auto compendium. I'll do it here as well. When we're talking about the monetary base, we're talking about something that is not a claim. If you're going to talk about all the other claims, euro dollars and contracts that are priced in dollars, gold is priced in dollars, oil is priced in dollars. Obviously, yes, the network effect of what we call the dollar is gigantic, but that is not what we're talking about here. That is not what compares to 21 million Bitcoin. Bitcoin has claims as well. I just talked about it. Uh, you know, it's not as it's a bit nebulous. It's not as uh, you know hashed out as these regulated banking uh, industries are and banking markets. But you know, we got we got we got uh, creditors for MT Gox still. We got uh, Bitfinex. Uh, tether sort of other holders that have mixed some interesting, you know, there are plenty of claims that have floated about on top of the actual UTXOs, the actual Bitcoin that underlies those claims. So Bitcoin is no different than the rest of the financial system there. In any event, going back to this thing about Japan, my question to Joe about Japan, and I've said this before, is like, uh, what are you actually saying about Japan? Then? If, if Japan you know, we could go full SJW if we want. Like, what? what I just want to know what what does he have against Japan? So let's actually break this out. So, um, <laughs> you know, I am sitting here talking to you in the former Soviet Union. Uh, I've been very vocal about my criticism towards you know Putin and all this other stuff that's going on today. We could maybe talk about that if we have time. Uh, but in any event, uh, I, I love bringing all uh, actual race in actually to economic discussions because it just you know the Soviet Union just blasts and 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 nullifies any argument that any SJW BLM type in America might have uh, today. I'm getting to Japan, but you'll see. So, um, you know, what was the Soviet Union? It was a super state of mostly mostly uh, white Eastern European people. Uh, you know. Uh, colonized by uh, Moscow, this town, which, um, you know, has never really been ruled, whatever. We talk about the history of that, but uh, all mostly white in the Soviet Union. Uh, all of the Eastern European uh, countries were white uh, that were not in the Soviet Union, some that were like the Baltics, the occupied ones. And they all failed miserably in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, as far as the economic growth, um, just absolutely demolished, destroyed in terms of their growth compared to the West, a complete mirage. Uh, come here. Uh, I'm always, I've said, I think I've said it on your show. I'm always happy to buy people beer. If you come over to Eastern Europe, whenever you get your vaccine or whatever you need to do to travel, uh, happy to buy you beer outside here, whatever you want, whatever you're comfortable with. And we can see how, you know, on the countryside, they're still, you know, they're vastly, vastly behind the Western world 
uh, as far as their development. Their capital cities are great, but whatever, they're behind. It's a bunch of white people in Eastern Europe, all white, horrible, horrible economics uh, uh, circumstances for the entirety of the Cold War. So if there were some SJW, BLM type person uh, in the world, in the Western world today saying, you know, our problems, our economic problems are rooted in racism. My shining example is simply the white uh, former Soviet Union countries who has just been absolutely destroyed economically after the cold, uh, during the Cold War, after World War II. What was the reason? Had nothing to do with racism. They were all white. I'm going to say it again and again and again. They were all white. They simply practiced socialism. Socialism, uh, autocratic, dictatorial, awful regimes, uh, price controls. They didn't have a market. That's why they were horrible. Now, now we get to Japan. For 50 years, the United States was number one in economic growth. Soviet Union was number two. And I just told you how fake Soviet Union was. The numbers were absolutely fake. They had massive debt from uh, Western Germany secretly in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and, and one might actually ask, uh, ask, why did this super state collapse in 1991 if it was supposedly the second largest economy in the world in the 80s? Obviously, because... They didn't have any private property rights, socialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the greatest example in the world. Of course, there are many other failures, Mao and Asian atrocities these days in China. I'm not a fan of their communist party either. The party, not the Chinese people, but the party. Um, so here we have Japan. Marty, do you know where Japan was ranked in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as far as all the countries? Uh, GDP is like the power of their economy. Electronics weren't big yet. <clears throat> so I'm going to guess outside the top 10. They were getting there, actually. They were getting, uh, uh, sorry, no, no, it's much higher. Electronics were getting there in the 80s. And so if you were a person in the US, uh, the financial headlines in the 80s would be like, Japan is coming to take us over. So you had Sony, you had all of these, um, you know, any, any, uh, I just love the example of Nintendo. I mean, you know, 80s, 90s, I know you're a little bit behind me, but like after, once you beat the big ball, what do, what do the credits say 99% of the time? They're all Japanese, right? Massively creative country. Uh, they did have a huge tech boom in the 70s and 80s. So the answer is, Marty, they were number three, literally neck and neck was the Soviet Union. I just told you again, Soviet Union was a complete mirage, failure, catastrophic uh, destruction of a huge generation of wealth and uh, per, you know, morally just absolutely destroyed a generation of people in Eastern Europe, all white, by the way, all white. So Japan was number two. Japan, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, they, like Tokyo, uh, anywhere, like the, you know, Nintendo, Sega, Sony, the, these were, this, this was a juggernaut of a country that was working extremely hard after being on the opposite side of you know, the Western world in World War II and was absolutely an economic powerhouse. I mean, millennia of civilization and uh, organization, absolutely beautiful country, uh, fantastic uh, people, and very, very uh, powerful when it comes to the economy. Japan was number two. Japan is number two economy, basically through the entire Cold War into the 90s. Now, they did have a credit boom and bust. They had lots of, a lot of problems. But the U.S. also had credit boom and bust, lots of problems. Everybody has lots of problems, growing economy. You know, Sometimes there's uh, uh, slowing uh, age. Uh, there's this you know, age gap that Japan has. It's talked about a lot. 
they have, um, you know, slowing, uh, you know, demographics, these types of things. But plenty of other people in the Western world have that in Europe, Europe as well. So my question, again, him just, you know, this is actually a lot of answer than I was, you know, imagining when I was thinking about whatever he was saying about Japan, because he never clarified it. But he basically said, throw out the whole exhibit because Japan is at the top. Doesn't make any sense. What does he have against Japan? I mean, Japan is a massively <laughs> powerful, powerful, historically amazing juggernaut in the economy. And by the way, after the United States, China, and the bloc of Eurozone nations, not the European Union, Eurozone nations, which is less, like 17, uh, uh, 19 countries, Japan is number four, barely, as far as GDP goes. So Japan is a massive economy still in the world today. And yeah, Japan prints money like the best of them. They've been printing money 10 years before the Federal Reserve's been printing money. Um, they've had uh, lots of inflation. They, they've been doing what Murray Rothbard said. Uh, I always mention this, right? The Austrians, you know, the hardcore, usually they were kind of gold money types. But one, things that, that one of the things that they would always say, and which never really happened during their lifetime, was, look, <clears throat> central banks may be buying government bonds today, but they'll start buying other assets tomorrow. They never really got to see that. Now it's happening. And, it, and Japan is leading the pack. Japan is actually, paradoxically, has been the reason why its monetary base is kind of high as well, is it has a lot of investments in, it has Apple, Facebook, it has uh, stock in real estate companies. Uh, it's not just its government bonds, which it owns. But in any event, Japan's a major country. I don't know what he's got against Japan. And just to sort of, I don't know, shrug it off because Japan is in there. Uh, it just shows me that he doesn't know enough about Japan. And I'd like to hear from him what, he, uh, what he's got against Japan. So that's about Japan. That's way longer than I thought it would go. Sorry. Um, uh, the context is incredible. And I feel incredibly ignorant for not realizing that the electronics boom happened in the 70s and 80s. But no, yeah. no, it's, it's, I, I, yeah, it's maybe it's exemplifies what he's thinking as well. Maybe you're just not thinking about it that way. Uh, I, I didn't mean it to come off that way for you, Marty. I'm just saying, uh, yeah, they, they were leading the way. Like if you were reading financial uh, news in the 80s, you say Japan is coming, like they're coming to take us over. This is a national crisis. And of course, they had their own credit bubble. They had problems just like we had our own credit bubble. We had problems. I'm not saying anyone's perfect any which way, but I'm just, I'm bad. I'm literally baffled to just X off. Like literally you just want to cross someone off this list for some reason. Like, I don't know. I don't know what his problem with Japan is. <laughs> it's a great country. It's a great economy. And I'll get to the tweet in a second. If you want to say something, I'll get to this. Uh, no, and I think, I think Joe's discounting of Japan or just, throwing it to the wayside like oh japan's in there it doesn't make any sense it just highlights the high time preference nature of our society right like the like you just described how big of a juggernaut japan was only decades ago and uh, still is and still is number four in the in the world after these three blocks yeah uh, yeah it is it's pretty weird that you're just able to be like oh no it's not the euro or the dollar yeah, so he didn't like that it wasn't the dollar, basically. So he wanted to just throw the whole thing out. That was the main part, but he never he never backed it up, never said anything. And then all I want to say, uh, as well as this this comment, I re responded to him. He didn't respond to me. Um, this is his like his little you know words, sort of word you know word summary of his article. He tweeted, 
I'll just read this because literally every single word in here is wrong, like financially, economically, accounting-wise. This is conclusion. And again, monetary base is really just a reflection of the term structure of government liabilities. Does the central bank want to have long-dated liabilities, treasuries, or short-dated ones, reserves? Says nothing about the relative size of the currency. <sighs> All right, let's just break this down. <laughs> And again, monetary base is really just a reflection of the term structure of government liabilities. I don't even know what he's saying. It doesn't make any sense. But apparently he's saying that the central bank has a lot to do with uh, government liabilities. I, I actually agree with that statement. But what he might not know is the mouthpiece that he is representing, the mainstream media, they don't say that at all. Remember, Central banks are supposed to be independent of their governments. They're supposed to have this independent. They work in the U.S.'s case. They work for uh, maximizing employment and they work for lowering, keeping as low as we can, managing inflation. Those are their two, the dual mandate of the Federal, the federal Reserve. Uh, other central banks have different mandates. Europeans are just about uh, keeping inflation in check because of their you know, ravaged past uh, after World War One and World War II. Um, anyway, in, in any event. Monetary base is really just a reflection of the term structure of government liabilities. He doesn't seem to understand. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go back to this statement, but he doesn't seem to understand how the monetary base actually works. So the next point, does the central bank want to have long dated liabilities, treasuries, or short dated ones, reserves? So he's saying, as far as I can tell, is the central bank has treasuries as liabilities or reserves as liabilities. This is just, I've said it again and again and again, that the, the reserves and the currency, they are liabilities of the central bank, but what they hold are treasuries. That is their asset. So what he's saying here, as far as I can tell, is just he doesn't even know how it works. He doesn't know where treasuries sit on the central bank balance sheet. He doesn't know where reserves sit on the central bank balance sheet. Does the central bank want to have long dated liabilities, treasuries, or short dated ones, reserves? He's making it seem like there's some either or or some lever some sort of uh, managing it this way. It's never either or. It's always and. If the central bank wants to print money, they increase reserves. And once they do that, they buy treasuries from the market. They buy them from banks. So it's always and. They're opposite sides of the balance sheet. And I, I wrote this to him. Reserves go up. Their treasuries, the, the Federal Reserve's treasuries on its balance sheet as an asset goes up. Reserves are liability. Treasuries are an asset. So again, it shows me he doesn't understand what he's talking about when we're talking about uh, the monetary base. Does the central bank want to have long-dated liabilities, treasuries, or short-dated ones, reserves? It's not. Treasuries are not a liability on the central bank's balance sheet. They're an asset. And reserves are liability, is correct. But again, it's not either or, it's always and. So he he's not even accounting-wise explaining how the process works. So I just, I don't get it there. And then last one says nothing about the relative size of the currency. This is, uh, this is, this is groundbreaking. It says nothing about the relative size of the currency. The last I checked, uh, monetary policy, which is implemented via the manipulation of the monetary base, which is the central bank's balance sheet, monetary policy, last I checked, had to do with money, had to do with the size of money. So to say that 
monetary policy that is manipulating the monetary base has nothing to do with the relative size of the currency. I mean, where, where does one go from there? I mean, it's, it's almost like he's afraid to admit that, yes, this is the money supply that you need to be looking at because <laughs> it is exploding, which is another thing. But uh, that we're, we're talking about monetary policy. So uh, again, it just it seems like a bunch of jumbled words that weren't really put together with any sort of understanding of actually how it worked. Um, so I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you have any questions there? Yeah, it does. It makes it makes a ton of sense. And then even going back to like the treasuries, long dated treasuries, the Fed is openly like this is like semantics argument, but they've also been buying short, short dated treasuries as well. Correct. Like, yeah, they, they primarily buy short dated treasuries. They have this thing they used to have this operation twist. Remember, they were buying some yeah. long. Dated. But the uh, he's not he's saying that like the liabilities are not in the central bank. The, like treasuries or gilts, what we call them from the, from the UK, or owns is the German treasury, or JGBs is the Japanese government bond. They're not liabilities of the central bank. They're assets of the central bank. He's not even using the right words. Like he, he, he doesn't know the difference. And this is why I hate, I'm getting to the first step. That's why I hate economic arguments and economic blustering. It's so full of hubris. Economics is the only, it's the only field that I know where you can literally just say the opposite of the fact of the definition and people like kind of take you seriously because they don't understand the difference. Like if I was a surgeon and I said, you know, hand me that fork. And I was talking to my, you know, colleague, hand me that fork, that fork. And I think, what, what, that fork right there. And like, you mean like the scalpel? Oh, right. The scalpel. Like, I mean, <laughs> it'd be like, what? That, any, any, like any other field of professional, uh, you know, rigorous sort of, um, rigorous professionalism, let's say, where you actually need to do a job, you can't just speak in words where no one understands you. You can't just not use factual words, like real words that mean something. You know, that's why like, I was never a Bitcoin cash person because I understood the word Bitcoin. I understood, you know, the network Bitcoin. Like it's, it's, it's the same type of thing. Like it's, he's not even using the right language and he's trying to like, I don't know, make some groundbreaking thing about the monetary base is really not that big a deal. And he doesn't, you know, it doesn't understand why, it, you know, it should be a part of any, any sort of uh, scholarly analysis or anything. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so again, that goes back to the first statement. Monetary base is just a reflection of the term structure of government liabilities. Central bank's not the one that issues treasuries. The treasury is. The government when it runs a deficit, when it can't pay for stuff, it has to sell debt. It has to sell bonds. It's like basic economic economics 101. The central bank does not issue the debt. The treasury does. And so this is really the crux of it. Like economists today, you know, George Selgin, who we can talk about later as well, he's always mentioned this. I, I thoroughly agree with him. Like economists, uh, papers, people that talk about stuff, they never want to talk about the supply. Another beautiful spotlight that Bitcoin has shined a light on directly, succinctly, clearly, and wonderfully is the supply matters, right? I mean, in economics, Cadillac, like in, in, in very simple terms, price, supply, demand, price, supply, demand, these things matter. Bitcoin is very, very clear, but we don't even know what the money supply is of the US or like we're trying to figure that out. That's why I'm doing this exhibit here. That is the money. The central bank controls the money. They do not control 
the amount of res, uh, treasuries. The amount of treasuries is controlled by the treasury. And so if he's saying that, oh, they work hand in hand, I'd actually agree with him. But he should, you know, the, the, that's not openly the, admit that. Yeah. First of all, that's not the uh, argument you'll hear on mainstream media. The, the, the central bank is independent. They're working for the, you know, the people controlling unemployment, all of these things. And also uh, interest rates. People all love to talk about interest rates, like a marginal change in interest rate here will change the debt payments here. You know, we can afford to do this stimulus there. All of that stuff is just very, very short term, short term stuff. But it it completely ignores the main thing, which is the supply. Where where would that impetus to change interest rate comes from? It comes from the supply of money. So to clarify, to clarify, monetary policy, like why does a central bank exist? It exists for one reason. It exists for the government to uh, pay for its unpaid debts. And it's those debts that the government doesn't want to simply borrow from the general public by itself. That's why it's there. It's definitely there as well for the banks. You know, there's monopolistic things, all this other stuff about uh, keeping interest rates low for its, you know, its its banking friends. And I, I have a lot of, I, I really like banking history. We can talk about banks. I have no problem with banks, but banks that are in this monopolistic structure of central banking, that's where I would have a problem with. And I think many other Austrians and Bitcoiners do uh, as well. So to clarify, the only thing that the central bank does at the end of the day is it buys its own government's bonds out of the marketplace. So if you're buying, and it does that by printing money, you print money, you buy bonds. What happens if you're like, you did not have this buyer before, all of a sudden you have this huge buyer that has monopolistic privilege, it can print money, it can buy bonds. What does that do to the government, the price of government debt? It will go up. Go up because you have this buyer here, this massive buyer that was not there before. That's what the central bank is there. So it's there to prop up. It's the creative floor in the price of government debt. It's to keep sort of the the you know the wheels turning, but in a way that seems better because presumably, again, economically, all I can say is like if ceteris paribus, if the central bank was not there buying those bonds, the price would fall. And again, bonds just like real estate price is, in, in, uh, is inverse to yield or the interest rate. So if the price falls, rates will rise. It'll be painful for people. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, central yeah. banks stepping in, lender of last resort, holding that price stable so the interest rate uh, remains relatively low so that the government and the economy that the government represents doesn't have to grow at a rate at which it would not be able to pay back the debt it's accrued. Is that a good exactly. at a rate at a rate that's just ceteris paribus uh clearly going to be a higher interest rate than if that central bank was not there so that's what they do that's 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 what the central bank does it buys the government's liabilities um but it but again monetary base is just a reflection of the term structure of government liability monetary base has nothing to do with the term the treasury sets the term structure they set it in the market investors yield. okay i want to buy a, a one month uh bill or I want to buy a 30-year bond. Austria, I think, is a 100-year bond. There's different marketplaces, different things. They're, you know, some are crazy, some are normal. The market sets those things, and that's the, a reflection between the market and the government. And, you know, is government good? Is the government bad? Uh, monetary base is it's not, it's just, it's just words that are clearly show that he doesn't understand the economics of how it works. And again, so just to say, does the central bank want to have long-dated liabilities, treasuries, or short-dated ones? reserves 
you just got to look at a balance sheet, man. I mean, that's like, that's accounting 101. This is economics 101. The central bank has nothing to do with the production of government debt. Um, at least so your networks say, right? They're completely independent. Uh, the government does its thing. If it needs someone to buy its debt, well, the, tre- the Federal Reserve might decide to come in and buy it. But that has nothing to do with the, any, any buying or selling of government debt will never tr- change the term structure of government liability. The Treasury, when the Federal Reserve owns the Treasury bonds, except instead of like a pension fund or a bank or family office, the Treasury still has to pay interest, the Federal Reserve. Like it didn't change, you know, it is true that central banks typically give back most of the, uh, not most, but a certain percentage of the uh, interest back to the Treasury after they pay their expenses. That is true. That is true. But still, they pay interest. I mean, the, the, the debt is still sitting there. It's just a question of is it owned by banks or is it owned by the central bank? Um, but again, at the end of the day, like, again, I, I'm giving longer answers than I thought when I was just thinking about talking this, about with this with you. But uh, the words in, Word matter. In, yeah, the words matter in this summary. It, it clearly shows he doesn't know what the monetary base means. Uh, it clearly shows he doesn't know that when treasuries sit on a central bank balance sheet, they are assets. They're not liabilities. They're assets for the central bank. And the reserves, the monetary base, is what matches that typically, mostly, on the other side. And that's that's how they get money into the system. That's how they print money. And that's also how the state kind of keeps ahead of the market in general, keeps the price of its bonds higher in general than they otherwise would be, ceteris paribus, um, because there's a floor being set by this monopolistic central bank, which has, you know, apparently the independent privilege or independent uh, uh, authority to buy its bonds out of the marketplace if it chooses. If it buy again, if it buys the bonds, more reserves are going into the into the economy. That is an increase in the money supply. If it sells the reserves, if sorry, if it sells the uh, treasuries, did I say reserves? If it buys the treasuries, uh, it 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 prints money, prints reserves in a central into uh, banks. The reserves go into the market. Uh, that's an increase in the money stock has everything to do with the relative size of the currency going to his last statement. Uh, treasuries come out of the market. They sit in the central bank, but they're still, you know, they still need to have interest paid on them. It's a term structure has nothing to do with it. And then when the central bank wants to decrease the money supply, it sells those same bonds back to the bank, those banks and pension funds, family offices, whatever they pay for those bonds with reserves, which go back into the central bank, central bank can then burn them or whatever and uh, remove that money, but has everything to do with the money supply. This is a definition of monetary policy. Last I checked, monetary policy had to do with money. Like we're talking about money. We're talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is money. This has everything to do square on with what, you know, Bitcoin is about, money is about, and and, and just the, the word basic money basic money so it's it's a it's a laughable statement um you got to get you got to get correct with the words and you know treasuries on the central bank balance sheet assets they're not liabilities yeah i mean it should be pretty straightforward that the treasuries are liabilities of the treasury and uh, the yeah, of government you have to pay that back you have to grow your economy a profitable economy a growing gdp if you will to pay back the interest on those treasuries that you've issued yeah. Yeah. It should be pretty straightforward. I mean, that is economics 101. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I'll also say, I, I, I believe people like Francis Coppola never give us 
many, many Bitcoiners actually producing content, producing content, the benefit of the doubt. Like if you had turned in, if you had tuned into our podcast, if you actually listened to what we were saying from 2014 to 2019, we were never saying that the Federal Reserve was printing money. You never would have caught that from us on our show from 20. Well, we started in 2017. But um, if you're looking at this chart, it's on your it's still on the screen, right? Um, look at that green. That's the base uh, monetary base of the U.S. dollar. See, from 20 mid 2014 down to 2019, they were trying to take money out of the economy. They're letting um, they, they, you know, they weren't, uh, they were letting some of those, uh, treasuries expire. They weren't rolling them over. They weren't putting more money into the banking system. They were trying to use this, this word that was used all the time, normalize, normalize from the Q, huge QE that happened after the global financial crisis. So, you know, words matter. There is a money supply that, that means something. We talk about the printing press. This is the printing press. So you would never heard it from us that, that, um, that the central bank of the United States was printing. From 2014 to 2019 other central banks did european union did uh, china did other central banks were increasing uh japan did but you know the point is like they're very unfair to uh bitcoiners in general because bitcoiners come up with a lot of great content they educate people they're very uh friendly they're very good with their time and it's it's just real stuff like we're if i if i was a i guess sorry i get on these tangents if I was like in my 20s, tangent. don't don't worry about the tangents. Keep tangent. <laughs> I would. And I, I was this person as well. Right. I was trying to get to the bottom of this, understanding the money printing, understanding the monopoly, understanding legal tender laws, understanding FDIC insurance. Yeah, you get you know, if this stuff matters and you believe it matters and you want to understand it, you know, you, you do like I, I can understand why some Bitcoiners a lot who are young or in their 20s that might say stuff like, you know, central bank is printing all the time or this and that, you know, it's just, it's, it's natural, but the great content is not coming from like these, you know, Harvard economists or whatever, who Larry White always mentions, Larry White always uh, makes this, uh, this caveat or this like points out that, you know, where, where is the budget for these economic papers? And these, you know, uh, rationalizations for quantitative easing, where are they coming from? It's obviously government grants and subsidies. So, you know, it's it's clear who's wagging what tail there that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's coming out. But Bitcoiners, they don't have that. Of course, we have our biases. We have our uh, what we appreciate and what we um, is important to us. Like you and I, we might not agree on everything, but our uh, and, and you might not even do well, this is why I'm on your show, right? And this is how it is. This is how it works with everything. You know, people have things that are important to them. Like this is one of the things that I do in my own time. Maybe I can get it into something a little bit more money making in the future. But I'm doing what I do because I think that it's important. I think it's important to understand. I think it's important to educate people about it. Um, likewise, you're doing the same with a lot of other people uh, every day, all day, right? Uh, other guests. And like, yeah, we do have biases. Sometimes we might not agree here or there. And it is true. We, we, at the end goal, we all agree, right? We all agree that there is uh, no control of the money supply with these leg legacy fiat financial systems. If Bitcoin solves so many other problems. And then technologically, what developers are working on is just incredible. I mean, with Schnorr Taproot, I mean, that gets going like it's just going to be, there's incredible developments of the legacy financial system. My point of just saying all that is uh, 
if you look hard at the Bitcoin community, they're educating very specifically with very real things, like very tangible things, very real world things. And these sort of train spotting, no skin in the game, um, just sort of fluff words. When you just look, you just you just look at like one paragraph, concluding paragraph in this case, it's it's obvious to see that there's no skin in the game and just does not does not have any understanding of what the facts of the matter are. I think it's I, I think it's it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that I don't know. If I were if I were a subscriber to to him or any of these other people that uh, talk so much shit about Bitcoin, you know, what what is what does Joe know about Japan that I don't? Like should I be shorting the Japanese yen? I mean, put your money where your mouth is. I mean, like if you just think that we should just scratch Japan off this list because you know something that we don't, uh tell me. You know, I I don't I just don't know where they're going, right? Like we're we're putting like real cold hard facts, real numbers. I mean, the development behind this stuff is incredible. Uh, yeah, our conclusion is we're biased. We have, you know, we're, we're, we we have we're invested for sure. Um, but at least we have skin in the game. And so again, if I was a twenty year old reading this stuff, I would not waste my time. I've done this. I've done this by the way in my twenties. Like, don't if if you're going to read newsletters and stuff. Um, you're just going to get a few charts and then a bunch of basically uh, basically your biases will be confirmed for the rest of that stuff. And uh, so go for it, you know, do it if, if you want. But like, really, if you want to really understand it, get an education on it, I would say, you know, read a lot of the old Austrian uh, literature, you know, Mises, Rothbard, Hayek. Um, I'm a huge fan of the free banking school as well, which I think we can derive some nuggets about the importance of banking without a central bank interfering. Uh, so that would be, you know, Dr. Selgin and Dr. White. My listeners know that as well. Um, those, those are the places where you're really going to start to understand if you want to like really get a grasp of how the financial system works or this, or, you know, I'm happy to flex a little bit and pump what we've been doing. I mean, I'm not going to stop publishing this just because some random, you know, trolling uh, mainstream known coiners or whatever you would call them. I don't know. Uh, just don't think Japan should be on there. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's really mind boggling. It, it is mind boggling. Um, we all have our biases. I don't deny that I have biases, but you got to start from a place of solid ground. Like you gotta, you gotta start from real facts, real definitions, real words. You got to understand how the balance sheet works, how the mechanics of money creation work. And, you know, newsletters just aren't going to get it, get you that. You're going to get some charts that confirm your bias, some charts, some words that confirm your biases. Or if you don't agree with that, you're not going to read that newsletter. So, um, I, it, it, that's a, another general tangent. Like, no, I think maybe I will start a newsletter someday, but uh, <laughs> now I'm just worried about putting out the the facts, man. I'm just I'm I'm taking real numbers and putting them down. Uh, somebody writes a newsletter, I fucked up like the monetary base. So, I, last month it's not easy but i i do agree bitcoiners wear their biases on their sleeves like i had marty's bent literally top yeah, of the I, did, I didn't even think about that talking with you about your newsletter no it's okay it's okay I, this comes with the territory that's the risk i take writing every day but that's what i say like hey this is my bent this is my inclination yeah. of, of the information that i've digested in the last 24 hours just wear that on your sleeve like hey disclaimer this is what I'm thinking. And I, again, I'm a Bitcoiner. I want Bitcoin to succeed. I own Bitcoin. Uh, you make that apparent. And I think that's 
completely ethical. Whereas like you're saying the, the other side, the traditional economic side is not always as, as transparent of, of their intent and, and their biases as well. Um, yeah. There's no skin in the game and um, they're great writers. I mean, Matt Levine, uh, he uh, has great, uh, Bloomberg newsletter I subscribed to, uh, fantastic, but it's, it's just hilarious to watch them get triggered from Bitcoin and crypto and Dogecoin. Um, he just gets triggered again and again and, you know, writes great stuff, but, um, it's, it's just really interesting to see because it's growing. I mean, you can't, you can't deny it. Obviously the only thing we care about is price, not we, you and me, but like the collective, we as a society, like price really, really will push the needle as far as, you know, interest and adoption and everything. That's, that's true. It's a, it's an unfortunate truth, right? Like not as many people like us, like digging into the numbers, trying to understand it. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's always this push pull stuff. I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to maybe r ramble on a little bit more than I, than I wanted to there, but, uh, um, I think, I think this is important nailing down on, on, the definition of the words that we're talking about and the comparisons that we're making and, and accurately portraying what we're trying to, to articulate here. That's, that's why I keep having you back on and I always write about your monetary base update because I think it is, again, like I said in the beginning of this episode, the, the most clear signal of Bitcoin comparing it to its competitors, which are base monies. And no, I appreciate that, my friend. Definitely do. Definitely do. And uh, yeah, like uh, my point about newsletters, just to be clear, uh, go for it. I'm speaking specifically like Bitcoiners in their 20s trying to trying to absorb this stuff. Uh, everybody's going to push their bias for sure. Try to stick with, you know, some classical stuff that stood the test of time. You know, you know, what has government done to our money? Uh, old sort of books, pamphlets like this. And then, yeah, read like if you really want to know like what's happening to the money supply look at the numbers so that's like what we're we're trying to do there but but yeah i've you're, you're always going to get there's always going to be bias and whatever any anyone puts out like lynn alden's great right she's fantastic um she'll put she'll bombard you with information <laughs> and she does a pretty good job i think of not letting her biases uh come through but um you know and then you start to get in the world of investing you know this, this or that so there's there's definitely there's uh, there's challenges to wade through some of this stuff. I think if you're a young person trying to soak up a lot of this, a lot of this education, and and again, economics. This again, I, uh, this is what I was thinking about in the back of my mind the whole time. It's like what other industry can you just say a word backwards, opposite the in, like not only incorrect but the opposite of correct. Like just you can say these words; they make no sense in the context of how you know of what you're critiquing or whatever. But then, you know, people just uh, kind of shrug and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, yeah. Or like I was even looking at some of these other quotes, like here's, there's mainstream financial bloggers now quoting. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Good, good point, Joe, or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I'm just like, these guys don't know how it works. They don't know. Uh, they don't know how it works. And uh, it's one thing to just say, okay, money, print, money, print, money, print. You know, printing press go burr, government's bad, this and that, this and that. I'm just saying, look at the numbers and uh, and decide for yourself. Yeah. Well, let's look at the numbers. Let's dive into it. Like you said, between middle of 2014 to 
was late 2019. Yeah. The Fed was was taking money, money out of the economy. Correct. Um, but that that has since changed since the the onset of the economic lockdowns and the the stimulus that ensued and we've seen an insane amount of base money uh, growth over the last year and a half now or year and a couple months to be specific what what stood out to you from Q1 or excuse me Q4 2020 to Q1 2021 well uh Canada is a uh, is a country that um traditionally was pretty stable and pretty uh pretty modest as far as like its money printing went its uh supply of its uh monetary base had a lot of uh historical good policies surrounding banking and money they did start a uh, central bank one of the last to ever start it in the modern world in 1935 i believe um we've talked about that i think on your show as well i've talked about other places uh canada actually has a, a lot of success um, in banking, they didn't even feel like they needed to own gold, which was a stupid decision because they sold a lot of the gold and then gold went up. But, um, it, yeah, in, in really recent years, they have just exploded on scene. They weren't even in the top 10, um, last year. And then because of COVID, uh, and the amount of printing that they did, I actually made one chart for Rodolfo. Um, let me see if we can find this link and I'll send it to you. Uh, but basically, um, you know, they were going along at like 7% a year, which is a lot, by the way, um, but a stable 7% a year for like 80 years. And then since basically January of last year, March of last year, whatever, they've gone at a 280% annualized growth rate, which is uh, obviously just exploding. And, um, you know, and, and also to be clear, like when I write these things and I talk about these percentages, it's not like I'm saying, all right, this is fantastic. The numbers are going high. Bitcoin has to do great, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's not a good thing. I mean, like you know, COVID is not a good thing. The way the governments respond to it, it's not a good thing. I'm not happy that these things are happening this way. That's just, again, that's another point, uh, by the way. Um, the only sort of catalactic statement, the only economic statement that I make in this uh in this exhibit is is when i talk about you know what does a rising base money supply mean well ceteris paribus that is all things equal otherwise uh, a rising base money supply has to equal a rise in prices it's like one of the most basic economic things again right like catalactics economics supply demand price we have to focus on these things. You can't just look at interest rates. You can't look at what the Federal Reserve is targeting or the ECB is targeting. You got to look at the supply to understand this. Now, there are plenty of things in economics. There's a lot of hubris. There's a lot of things happening from all angles. It's hard to understand some of this stuff. But just focus on the basics. Ceteris paribus, all things equal, a rising base money supply has to, it has to mean uh, rising prices. Now, the world doesn't work in ceteris paribus, right? So we, you know, you will have some increase in the demand for money. You will have some crony capitalism. You will have some projects that are fueled and do great because of low interest rates and money printing. You'll have certain people that gain, uh, a small percentage of people that gain. You have more people that lose. Um, but those are those are the things that really I want to talk about there. So Canada has been really uh, crazy. Um, also, another one that I added. Uh, let's see if I can find the tweet. It's just, again, going back to the U.S. because that's uh, it's your market. It's many people's market. 
um, that I talk to as well, my home market as well. If you go to tweet uh, 55. 55, here we go. I thought I only saw 26 on the... Uh... Uh, I started, I, I have, you, Twitter lets you only do 25 at once. And then I add on more peek behind the curtain there. Cause I have like a database of all those different tweets and change some and whatever. Let me see 55. Here we go. That's a good one too. We'll go back to that. But so talk about like things that might surprise you or change I, I wasn't doing this one and this by the way when i get the website up and running and much better can you click on that the picture yeah yeah so this is something that you'll see as well from the from the new and improved website in uh, hopefully not too distant future um starting to again take these hard and real figures of the money supply and then look at other things and we can start to talk about inflation as well here marty but look at other things that this affects. So let's just run through it. Um, in in 2000, so I'm picking, I am obviously being, uh, I'm, I'm well aware that most of the money printing that the United States did happened after the year 2000, happened after the dot-com boom and bust, and then from then on out. But nonetheless, the monetary base was only about 600 billion in 2000. Now it's 5.8 trillion. Okay, so compounded from those 20 years, uh, that is a 12.1% compound growth or a doubling every 6.1 year. Doubling is very important, I think, for a lot of people to understand when they're trying to learn this stuff. Like compounded is the figure you want. Like that's what a, a yield is of a government bond. Like it doesn't matter that if it's a six-month bond, a 12-month bond, a 36-month bond, a 30-year bond, it's always going to be quoted as a price of the yield. That is like basically how much money you're going to earn once all is said and done, your coupon payments, and if there was any discount upfront paid back, that's the money that you make annualized. And that's the same thing as like an IRR, yield to maturity. You hear these things, compound annual growth. It's a very strong number. Uh, uh, rule of 72 is very helpful, I think, for uh, people learning this stuff. So 10% is uh, fits perfectly with the rule of 72. You would think that a 10% growth over a certain amount of years would mean that the thing would double after 10 years, but that's not how compounding works. Thomas Jefferson said it's the eighth wonder of the world compounding. Um, the rule of 72 works perfect with 10. So 72 divided by 10, forget the percent sign, just forget the percent sign. 72 divided by 10, a 10% return, that's going to grow. That's going to double. That tells you the doubling time every 7.2 years. So that's that's what a 10% return would do. So just keep that in mind. Like That's why I always show compounding I don't show anything else. I don't track prices. And we'll talk, we, let's talk about prices in a second because inflation is always, you know, these stupid debates make their way back into the media about inflation. Again, this is real inflation. This is money growth. This is a classical definition of inflation. So we got the annual GDP uh, in, in uh, 2000, it was about 10 trillion. Now it's 21 trillion. So GDP, as far as a growth rate, only grows 3.7% uh, a year. But money grew 12.1%, 12 12 something to keep in mind. Another way to put that, $1 base money in 2000 would get you $17 of GDP. In 2021, March, $1 base money would get you $3.61 of GDP now. So again, the, I really like looking at things this way, looking at there's just multiples. We don't have to we don't have to inflation adjust this. Like just, just look at it, how it was at one period, look at how it was in this period. The, 
the numerator, the numerator and the denominator didn't change as a thing. So you don't have to inflation adjust it. Got unemployment as well. Um, obviously, we're at a higher unemployment, but we're at a way higher monetary base. So you had $87 billion of base money printed per 1% of unemployment in 2000, 87 billion. Now you have 546 billion. So just for 1% of unemployment, right? Was this Federal Reserve supposed to be their mandate? It cost them $546 billion in base money just for 1% of unemployment today. It only costs you 87. You don't have to inflation adjust this. This is just a multiple. It costs you 87 billion in, uh, in 2000. Uh, debt obviously has grown. It was 5 trillion in 2000. Now it's uh, 27 trillion. That's an 8.3% compounded growth. They're doubling almost every nine years. Gold cap is about a trillion dollars in 2000. Now it's about 10 trillion. Again, around this 12% growth rate. S&P with dividends. These numbers are with dividends in case you're wondering. 7.7% growth. Uh, so you had to be, you know, even if you were invested in stocks, you wouldn't have kept up with gold. Uh, you wouldn't have kept up with government debt. You wouldn't have kept up with uh, the growth, the growth of base money, and then bonds is actually just a total return index uh, by Bloomberg, uh, four point seven percent for government bonds. So again, just putting the numbers out there, really without much analysis, uh, make of it what you will. But um, you want to you want to start to look at things this way rather than look at an inflation, is because these these sort of metrics, like when you look at just how many X did it take, you know, how many dollars of base money per uh per per unemployment percentage or per gdp those things are more interesting to me than uh inflation and this this debate comes you know every like couple quarters you know peter schiff gets on cnbc before he starts bad mouthing bitcoin he talks about inflation uh everybody talks about it it's it's interesting that this inflation debate is rearing its head again uh, one thing I can say, I'm never, ever, ever going to have inflation on the website. I don't care <laughs> or amazing it gets or people like it or they don't. You will never, ever see a government inflation, a, a government CPI, PPI, a government created index of prices on my website. It's just worthless. I mean, it's a completely worthless thing to analyze. As John Williams, you and I did that uh, calculation on shadow stats a while back. John Williams uses the calculations that they did in the 80s, in the 80s. And he gets a very different number than the numbers they produce today. But even then, like, look, John Williams has this, he's kind of typically a bearish guy. I'm not typically bearish in general about a lot of things. Like I said, there's great things about the Japanese economy. Maybe not so great things. There's great things about the US economy. Maybe not so great thing. But if you want to look at what, what we're interested in here, which is money, then you got to look at the actual numbers. You got to look at the balance sheet, look at the supply, look at the real thing. This made up thing about prices, it's just never going to be accurate. I remember after the 2008 crisis, like 10, you know, 11, 11 years ago, 2010, maybe. Um, I forget. I can't remember if it was a New York Fed governor, but it was in New York. I think it was a New York Fed governor. It was like talking to a group of people in like Brooklyn. And he's saying, you know, because inflation was just sky prices, obviously, were skyrocketing. I know you've written about this wonderfully as well about, you know, just samples obvious samples of prices that are so much higher than they were a year ago, two years ago, three, four, five years ago, 10 years ago. But even in 2010, prices were uh, skyrocketing and people were struggling. And obviously they were struggling for their credit problems as well. But he's like, you know, the, he's like, it was like a town hall kind of thing. He's like, you know, you got to look at the whole picture, you know, like technology is helping you. Know, iPads are going down. And this one person in the audience is like, I can't eat an iPad. <laughs> That's the basic thing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, 
it's nonsense, man. I cannot, I, I can't even, I have no patience for the inflation deflation debate or like the, 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 what the CPI means. It's just worthless. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's literally to, impossible. Your, 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 uh, your threshold for some price index is going to be different than mine because you're going to buy things that are different than mine. You, you might have a different, uh, threshold meaning like some tolerance than I do. It doesn't mean anything at all. There's no way that you can manage prices. What? Well, that's why I think of this chart. Um, on tweet 55 that you have pulled up, uh, the $1 base money will get you X dollars of GDP compared to 2000, 2021. I think that purchasing power or that productive productivity of that dollar, is that how you describe it? Yeah, they call it, they, they use a multiple, they call it a mul like a multiple that, that that's been used in the media and you do not need to inflation adjust that it's the numerator is the same denominator is the same. It's just a multiple. You can, you don't need dollars. So you can say X like one, $1 of, uh, base money used to be 17x on GDP. GDP was 17x, $1 base money. Now it's only 3.6x. Yeah, so you have to spend a lot more dollars to get the same amount of GDP that was being produced in 2000, which is... But you do not need to inflation adjust that number. You do not. No. I mean, I, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's like maybe a better metric than inflation. That's what I'm hoping to do. By, <laughs> by right? Numbers out. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a pretty stark number too. So you would need more than five x the amount of dollars today to produce one dollar of GDP than you would have in two thousand. Which is that's scary. So, like, I, I guess jumping back into like the update Q one twenty twenty one and where the Fed is right now, and I, I know you don't want to put inflation in your numbers. That's like the big topic this week. CPI came out at 4.2% April right. year on year growth. Um, and that's shocked a lot of Fed officials. So I, I don't want to focus on the actual inflation numbers, but just the sure. fact that the the Fed expanded uh, the monetary base significantly over the last 14 months and is, is shocked that inflation is running hotter than they expected. Um, and mind you, the Fed has set a target above its typical 2% target because um, it, it actively wants to um, overshoot their, their inflation targets to attempt to stoke the, the economy. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, like uh, what a lot of people don't know is from March, basically about a year ago in March, obviously when COVID stuff started, uh, an, another drastic step the Federal Reserve took was it uh, abolished this thing called the reserve ratio. And I don't know what the reserve ratio is. You don't know what the reserve ratio. The Federal Reserve damn near doesn't know what the reserve ratio is. But it is a ratio that is supposed to be there for the safety of depositors. So basically, that is a for all the demand deposits that are out there, banks are supposed to keep about 10% in base money. This is this this base money. It can be reserves or it can be actual cash. And actually, in fact, it's about four cents on the dollar in reserve is in cash actual money in the vault. It's impossible to make. You can't keep this money in the vault. There's no vault big enough to do it that way. So most of the reserves anyway are in bank reserves. They're not in cash in the vault. But um, anyway, they abolished that last year. And the reason they did that was because massive stimulus, massive uh, money printing. And the uh, there was no possible way that when the Treasury starts sending all these checks out, also the Treasury has a huge balance with the Fed now, which I don't want to confuse listeners based on what we were talking about before. It's just another, uh, it's another uh, 
uh, uh, uh, what's a good word here to use? It's just yet one more finagling, uh, um, it's a changing of the definitions, right? Like they 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 changed the facilities, the definition of the facilities, and all the, of those two, all of those two. I'm just it's it's just it's another sneaky thing they're trying to do. It's yeah. just a sneaky thing. It's 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 a little bit of some uh, some trickstery that um, that they uh, they have a huge bounce. So this again, back to the, the <laughs> I'll get into a little bit. If the Fed was independent, all right, they could do whatever they want. They you know never have any. Like if it really was independent, they would never ever listen. You know, they wouldn't have to ever come in front of Congress and do anything. They just do whatever they want, and they manipulate the money supply as they see fit for the betterment of the economy. That's would be independent. They're not independent, as we obviously know, but they're really not independent with this Treasury bonds. So they have about like over seven trillion in bonds as an asset, Treasuries as an asset, as we talked about on their balance sheet, which is huge. Because remember, uh, this is another thing that I have yet to put on, but I will. 27 tri sorry 7 trillion is on their balance sheet the debt as we see on this slide is 27 trillion that's a that that ratio is the highest it's ever been no doubt that's a huge number that they themselves control but on the liability side the reserves right which go into the economy the money supply that's only as we see here 5.8 trillion but that difference about 1.2 i haven't even checked it at exact it should be around 1.2 1.3 trillion dollars that's the most hilarious like amazing thing that anyone would love to have it's basically the treasury having a checking account with the fed buying its own debt like there's nothing more hilarious about that like it's just it's completely off market right it's like sitting at the federal reserve <laughs> they have their account uh, and, and other nations are doing this too norway has some weird ones it has some big fluctuations i think it has to do with their uh with their uh, pension fund scheme they have some really weird fluctuations in their choice i haven't analyzed it enough to uh, say anything more about that but i will in the future um norway does it uh federal reserve is another one that's just that's doing it like crazy and european union a little bit but not not as much but basically this 1.2 trillion it's like i don't know i'm gonna sell some bonds to raise money for a hotel but i'm gonna print the money myself uh and then keep it on my own balance sheet and you know people are going to accept that money and build it i mean it's just it's it's the, it's complete distortion of the market it's like the most extreme distortion of the market as you can think for that that 1.2 trillion it's not it's a smallish number compared to the 27 trillion in debt but it's still a big number uh in any event a lot of that has to do with the stimulus checks that's sitting as a like it's a treasury's account at the this is a, the treasury pays their uh their their contractors their 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 expenses out of this account it's sitting as a major like checking account asset for the treasury uh even though they have the liability outstanding and sitting with the fed as an asset um so they just have this trillion dollar balance with the fed and like stimulus checks are coming out of that and all sorts of other payments and uh once that starts to circulate through the economy like there's no way you can hold these reserve ratios i'm bringing it back to the reserve ratio point the reserve ratios would just there's no way. So they just abolished them a year ago. So, so they're doing different things. Uh, Europe, Europe has different reserve ratios entirely. They have something like 1%. In the US, it's like 10% for the biggest banks. It was 3.5% for the mid-sized banks. There was no reserve ratio for the smallest banks. There's another problem I have with central banking, as I've said before. Like None of us know what the reserve ratio is. You need the free market to do that. You need banks competing in the market with one another the central bank doesn't know that they can't know it it's impossible it's a planning board it's socialist there's no way um 
but uh, it's just it's some more shenanigans. Shenanigans was the word I was using, what looking for earlier. It's just more shenanigans and trickery that the uh, central bank is doing. And yeah, these are reasons why you're seeing this inflation. Uh, money supplies are shooting up in all ranges now, like demand deposits, because people are depositing these treasury checks. There's no way that the reserve ratio can stay intact. So it's been abolished. Um, the ratio just keep getting more insane. I mean, from that date that I have on this chart, 2000, that was like the last time you had something normal. And then once you had .com, and certainly once you had 2008, but even after .com, like, nothing is normal. Like, it's just not, again, normal was a, was an important thing. I mean, people use that for 50 years to 40 years, uh, post Bretton Woods collapse to talk about like what central banking should be. And, um, everything is just completely off the map now. So again, I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know exactly, you know, I'm not saying Bitcoin goes to a billion dollars tomorrow. Um, but obviously there are signs, you know, that that uh that that's uh, well, pointing to yeah i mean it started in september 2019 when you had the overnight repo spasms yeah right? they they expanded their facility there to allow the ficc to access the fed window so they could essentially bail out margined hedge funds correct pre-covid pre-covid so pre -COVID. it's not just covid that you know this stuff was not working out there was no way that we're that we're not going to start printing money in 2020 anyway anyway because of those problems as you rightly put um so well let's get back to the topic of like have the fed and the treasury merged i talk about you mentioned her early lynn alden and i last time she was on the podcast we talked about 1940s uh the inflation that was going on there and and during that decade the fed and the treasury basically essentially publicly merged and made it made it very public and she would make the argument, I believe, that in the last year, the Fed and the, the Treasury have essentially merged, but haven't made it public yet. And you see signs of this, like last week, Janet Yellen sort of posturing as the Treasury sec Secretary to, to force Jerome Powell to, to act in a certain way. And then they had like a little back and forth. And, yeah. and what you just described, like them holding $1.2 trillion uh, that was just created out of thin air as a bank account. Uh, at, yeah, with the at, Fed, at, and then the Fed holds their treasuries. It's like it's completely removed from the market. It's like the most. It's like Twilight Zone. I mean, it's just it's just the most made up thing you could have. There's no market participants at all in that in that transaction. Just the Fed and the Treasury, <laughs> and then us getting stimulus checks and other things, which will go into the economy. Um, it is going into the. I mean, yeah, that's what's frustrating is you have the the biased financial media pundits just just staring you straight in the face through the tv screen like there's no inflation yeah you're, you're, what you're feeling at the grocery store at the gas station uh, as you're trying to to rent or buy a home or go to college don't worry about any of that that's not what, are, what are some good arguments if any that you hear from people trying to say that there is no inflation do you hear any no good arguments i mean there isn't it <laughs> it's hard it's hard to take the argument seriously when you're looking again at your grocery bill or at your your how much money you just paid to fill up your tank or not right now I'm looking for apartments um potentially not apartments looking to rent a, ho a home potentially buy a home but I, I 
I think I'm just going to remove myself from even thinking about buying a home because it's just so overheated right now. Like I just hear stories, family members buying homes, having to go same day cash offer 20% over asking and 10% over asking. If you don't need to do that, you're not going to get the house and it just keeps like, small suburbs in Philadelphia that should not, I should not be appreciating the way they are. Their, their real estate markets are, are running crazy. I spoke to a gentleman last week who's got a cabin in the middle of Oklahoma. He bought last year. He's like, yeah, I could sell it for 80% above what I bought it for. I'm just like in the middle of Oklahoma. It's like, what, what is going on? Like, how's there not? Yeah. And let alone the most important things with, you know, medicine, healthcare, food, and, and education. I mean, who even knows what's going to happen to education in, in the Western world these days, but, um, Keep I'm hoping honest, it implodes. No, can you honestly tell me there's no inflation in those sectors? I mean, the, the quality's worse. <laughs> the prices are higher. I mean, I can guarantee you, like my, I went to, uh, you know, public university, University of Cincinnati, graduated in 2006. I can guarantee you it's over, um, it's uh, maybe 2.5x what tuition was when I was there. You know, fifteen. I mean, it's it's well above this two percent doubling every thirty years, uh, which Federal Reserve targets. It's, and it's leaking down. It's leaking it out in the high school. I went to a private high school. It was twelve thousand dollars my freshman year. <laughs> like fourteen my senior year. It's like twenty five now. I graduated yeah. in two thousand nine, so it's well, twelve years. Yeah, that's a doubling in twelve years. So it's not a thirty yeah. year doubling. It's less than half that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I think when they say two, it's at least four and then it just doesn't matter. Other, I mean, like it's, it's different for every person. It's just, there's just no way. This is a planning board. It's a planning board. Go back to what I say. It has nothing to do with racism or SJW or BLM or whatever. I mean, look at where I am right now. The former Soviet Union is doing fine. Now we do have some, uh, saber rattling from our easterly neighbors but um like all white people over here had nothing to do with it their economies were shit for 50 years uh generations of people truly were like they lost um their identity like they you know they of course they find a way to get by but like there are a lot of tragic stories coming out of the soviet union uh suicides and all this other stuff um it's socialism. That's socialism. It's starting to happen here. And then, then you had the Fed, the New York Fed specifically posturing like they're going to they're gonna solve social inequalities. Social inequities, I think, is actually the word they used. Um, you, you have the Biden administration leveraging the Treasury to go print this money to do a Green, green New Deal, shutting down fracking on federal lands, forcing the economy towards unreliable, renewable energy, uh, just which will inevitably drive up electricity prices. We've seen this happen in Germany already. Germany is a perfect use case for this. They, they've had this transition over the last two decades and the residential price per kilowatt hour is like 35 cents, which is insane. It's like three times what your average price is here in the United States. And then you're seeing all this central planning in terms of money printing and then uh, directing the the goods and services that American citizens can can actually leverage and and work on, and it's completely distorting the markets in more ways than than one. It's uh, I mean, and again, I've told this story 
many times on the podcast. Like when I worked at the Managed Futures Fund, I had a CIO who was grew up in Soviet Russia. He immigrated here in the '90s, and after uh, the Patriot Act specifically, uh, he he began to like pay attention. He was like, "Oh shit, this is turning into the Soviet bloc I fucking ran away from." And it's hard to deny that we're not becoming this this very centrally planned government or economy, excuse me, that, it, that the government, whether it be Trump or, or Biden, right? Like it doesn't matter. It's bipartisan. Like you, yeah. you pass the baton and just keep keep taking us further down the, the centralization road. Yeah, and that's that's a scary thing for sure. And I, I um I've been started to allude to it earlier, right? But I've been through that route. Um as I said, I'm a bit older than you, you know, almost 10 years. And so like I was doing a lot of this, uh, maybe, um, you know, I, I was bearish a, a long time following these like perma bears, like Peter Schiff or Jim Rickards or John Williams. And, uh, at some point, like I didn't want to do it anymore just because, you know, you got, you got everyone has their own life. You got to protect your family and just have fun and everything. And I was actually okay with that. Like, you know, we had Bitcoin, we had, uh, we were where we were, uh, economically, it wasn't that great, but we had Bitcoin. So like, I felt okay about just, you know, being kind of a lazy anarchist, like not really working to, uh, they're not really caring too much any like dated other than following the monetary base. Cause it relates to Bitcoin. Like I wasn't following like all the other inflation numbers or stuff like that. I just got tired of it. And, you know, lazy anarchist was one I'd use a lot. You know, I'd rather have a good, go to a good cocktail party and talk to people and uh just enjoy conversation rather than trying to immediately like after the weather like get political and you know be mad about it and stuff and i'm not saying that's, that's what you do i'm just saying i know i i definitely know where you're coming from i've i've changed definitely over the last like 10 years but i will say it's very depressing to see what's happened over the last year uh not only in the u.s but in uh western europe western europe's like u.s is actually doing better right now covid wise for like a freedom and stuff that you know you have and the, and the rights that are afforded to americans compared to like canadians or europeans is better in the u.s and that is better but here it's not at all and they're like i mean you know the the the, the i don't know it's just like this inner workings of this like fear of like someone coming over your border and like the dictatorial arm of the government has to just like immediately like just shove its fist in the air and like where you have to just say, all right like you're not going to be able to go outside you know for a period of three months like you're not germany you're not going to be able to cross borders even if you're just a regular trucker uh which they were doing for like three months now and like even if you had if you were vaccinated like all this like they're really hardcore draconian things that are happening all around europe and it's it is it is pretty scary and it's tenuous it's very tenuous and i i have a my perspective is a bit maybe unique or not unique, but I guess different than let's say like a libertarian, like in Texas, right? So Texans are awesome. They're independent and they love their, uh, you know, freedom and, and all that. Um, I would say that a probably libertarian in Texas wouldn't even really care, which I understand why, but they wouldn't even really say like us should be meddling where they are, uh, in Eastern Europe. But that's just a hard reality. Like again, we're like we're not five hundred years into like an amazing future where private property and insurance and Bitcoin and everything. Like this is just now. It's really tough because we're seeing. I mean, my wife is from Belarus. I mean, she she's Lithuanian, but you know, her family is from Belarus. Uh, they're just going through massive uh, revolutions, like staged suicides. Um, 
protests. I mean, they're just getting beaten down. Russia, it's happening now. Uh, Ukraine, it's been happening since 2014. I was there actually just before it erupted. Uh, it was the mid of the middle of the second week in the Sochi Olympics, uh, the second week of Sochi Olympics. And then, you know, he went and Putin went into Crimea a couple uh, weeks after that. Um, I don't know why they, these these crazy dictators feel like they need to, uh, you know, just take, well, I do know why they just, power is addictive and you take advantage of this when the chips are down, but it is bad. It's tenuous right now. I would say like, it's unnerving because this is like, I'm in the Ford Soviet Union. None of these, like, I can understand if a, if a libertarian from Texas would be like, all right, just don't fuck with the policies there. Like we have to like, let these people solve it on their own. Like we say with much of us foreign policy, right? Like bring troops home, stop, you know, messing with stuff. But I'll just say, at least for now where I am, thank goodness that we do have this alliance, which I also know is contrary to Jefferson, right? Trade with everyone alliance with no one. Okay. It's contrary, but, um, we have the NATO alliance, which is important. The Baltics where I am, uniquely as well one of the th three of the few countries that make their quota of defense spending to gdp very unique i mean and trump actually said that at the beginning of his term like you know you guys got to raise your spending right i mean we're picking up all the slack and it's true i mean it's embarrassing for europe really i mean like there was a time when the u.s had more than 90 percent of the nato budget like it was just i mean it is embarrassing that that europe can't keep it up more but where i am they absolutely understand it they absolutely understand the tenuous delicate like situation of freedom that uh just just how delicate it is and unfortunately big countries like to play ping pong with smaller countries you have these proxy wars we're having proxy wars in in ukraine you know syria was about to be a proxy war yeah it's just like there there are these proxy wars that that big governments like to play and it's, it is it's scary especially with the virus like i thought you could sort of get around it travel stay independent stay free but virus they've shown they've shown us that they can just ground us and it's 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 really unnerving to be over here i can say unfortunately not to be too much of a debbie downer but it no i mean it is it's scary here i mean luckily here in the united states this is one thing that's been very encouraging if we're going to silver line the last year is this i don't want to say regression but like a retreat to states rights and letting the states sort of yeah. figure it out, which has been good. Incredibly, incredibly encouraging to see. And yeah. it's a trend that I hope only gets stronger from here on out. And I think will get stronger in the United States particularly. But like you meant, like, dude, Canada is fucking insane right now. Not only yeah. in the amount of money they're printing, but like what, what they're doing to people is, is it like dragging pastors out of church, forcing people to stay in hotels and then pay for it when they when they travel abroad when they yeah. come back uh literally being able to pull people over without any any suspicion other than the fact that they may be infected it's it's insane yeah it's incredibly scary right now like what is the future gonna look like like what like so back to like monetary policy it seems like you're just gonna print and print and print and so that's like the other thing and the newsletter i read earlier this week the the pipeline shut down here even though it was driven by a ransomware attack and um a cyber attack if you will pipeline still shut down you have gas stations in the southeast of the country running dry um whether what regardless of what the impetus for that 
that lack of of gas in those areas is it's it's just something a, a little tinder a little fire on a little bit of tinder that that can lead to a little bit of confidence collapse in the system and that and that's enough so maybe this is an interesting conversation we could have towards the end here is like how much of currency debasement is the expansion of the monetary base versus the collapse in confidence and the ability of the central bank or the government to main, maintain the monetary system. Can you ask that question another way? So the Fed has printed a bunch of money right. over the last decade, particularly. Right. Um, yeah, like things are okay. Inflation's not uh, reported. Inflation's not that high. People are still living. Yeah, but we know that it is, right? Yeah. But like, it, is currency debasement part monetary expansion? Yeah. Like what we got here. Like, how does it get to this point? Was it more expansion or lack of confidence in the ability to maintain the monetary system? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think I know the answer. I do think I understand that it can happen quickly. And I do think that a good system can be resilient. I've said this as well. I believe on your show, I've said it many places but um the first the, the the basically the worst of the canadian great depression which they had one as well uh was worse than the u.s depression comparatively and u.s had umpteen thousand bank failures canada had zero had zero bank failures so their system was resilient it was more decentralized uh there was no central bank at the time in canada so you see what a you can at least with those examples you know in scotland as well i, I talked about this on nick's show as well there are this examples like the ire bank or certain banks that fail certain banks that don't um sweden had a free banking uh history as well in certain times like there are systems that can show us that a decentralized uh free of any government monopolistic uh control and mandating of this stuff with the iron fist like that can help you. Um, and that's why I say as well, to bring it back, you know, I know I'm going to get a jet soon, but like to bring it back to the, to, I, I'm definitely speaking to like the Bitcoiners who are trying to learn this stuff, trying to figure it out. They're hearing, you know, information overload from so many different places. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to make sense of it all. But I would just say, you know, thank goodness that we have, Bitcoin that is that escape hatch. It is that escape valve. It's practical, right? Like, cause even though we, we talk about like this, there's real geopolitical, geopolitical issues. Again, I wish we were in, you know, some free, completely anarcho-capitalist society 300 years from now, and we'll take where we just, everybody is protected relatively on balance with some private, uh, property, private insurance, private healthcare, just don't have that. So it's going to be uh, probably a battle, but I would also say um, I hope the cooler heads will like prevail from like the geopolitical issue. But even if they don't, definitely Bitcoin is like the biggest tool that we have to protect our wealth from this inflation where, you know, they basically steal your savings. So um, I, I'm jumping around a lot of topics, but like, you know, establish good relationships. Like I'm I work with your bank. Like I I'm not against banks. I, I know that that's like, there's a lot of hardcore Bitcoiners like totally against banks, but like work with your bank, try to get a good relationship. If you don't like your bank, you know, Caitlin Long is, uh, I don't even know the latest, what she's 
her bank should be launching soon. Launch, um, yeah, I think it's already launched. Uh, is it launched? Is it launched? Great. So yeah. I have to check that. But like there are, you know, s competitive centralized crypto systems, maybe competitive decentralized crypto systems, I'm not sure, besides Bitcoin. But there are plenty of ways now where you can take control of your financial freedom and just step by step start to manage this stuff, which is just incredible compared to when I was in my 20s. When I was first time I heard about Austrian economics and fractional reserve banking and all this stuff was post 2008 financial crisis, where like, you know, I'm watching YouTube videos from the 70s of Milton Friedman trying to, you know, stumble upon free banking uh, stuff from, you know, uh, Hayek and Dr. Selgin, Dr. White. Um, you know, works for Murray Rothbard, whatever. There's a there's definitely like an academic side of this, which I really, really appreciate, really like. And I think that just stick with the facts, like stick with the numbers, definitely try to find the signal over the noise. You can do it that way uh, by just looking at real numbers. And yeah, if you're going to read newsletters that reinforce your bias, read Marty's for sure. And um, and yeah, just get after it. I mean, as far as, you know, be entrepreneurial work for yourself, become free. If you can't work for yourself at the moment, do it in your spare time. You know, that's the best way to become entrepreneurs, get paid by someone else. But then in your spare time, uh, start, uh, you know, start, start your thing, start your gig, do whatever you're passionate about, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really a big fan of that. Like just try, try as much as you can to bootstrap whatever, whatever interests you. Um, I, I, I've, I'm not like a super, super duper uh business owner entrepreneur whatever but i've been working for myself for like 10 years now and it's been uh it's been great you know and i've been doing things like this like spreadsheets and where i love to talk about them and crunch the numbers and you know um i i hope to continue that and i hope that younger bitcoiners can uh can i'm just i mean it's an it's amazing obviously like we're definitely we gotten very serious i know we gotta you gotta go soon but like i i've got, just, I've got at least 20 minutes so okay okay cool well i was just saying like i'm just to maybe switch it back to more of the positive stuff i'm super super stoked for all of the great stuff that is coming in bitcoin and yeah i'm i'm not necessarily like just sell everything into bitcoin only do bitcoin like diversify if you want you know, manage some income, try to get some passive income. Maybe a bank can help you there. Maybe an exchange can help you there. Maybe uh, Avanti can help you there. I'm speaking obviously mostly to an American audience here. Um, so yeah, just establish those relationships and uh, and just keep looking at the, the signal, not the noise. All right. Well, let's jump into this more like a free banking system built on Bitcoin. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. We mentioned Selgin. Selgin called me out particularly. Oh, yeah? Uh, he yeah, we, we had a little we had a little back and forth on Twitter right. earlier this. I'm not like again, as listeners might know, I mean, with my uh, delayed responses, I'm, I'm just I don't have it on my phone, so I'm not like no, you're better off for that. But but yeah, what who has studied Selgin, studied Larry White, free banking, Hal Finney, December of 2010, described a, how a free banking system may evolve on Bitcoin. First, I want to touch on. Get your get your thoughts on why like a Selgin, Larry White of the world is so repulsed by Bitcoin, if you will. Why, how do they not see this can bring their vision of the world into and to fruition? And then how would you envision a free banking system growing on Bitcoin? Because how, when he did it, I don't think you can envision something like the Lightning Network or Liquid. 
at right. that time. Like, does that right change the game? Yeah. Um, to immediately answer that last question, I'm not sure that lightning changes the game. A, a federation like Liquid might a bit more because I, I feel, feel like there's a bit more flexibility there among as much as I hate to say it, like a centralized party that can be more efficient, uh, which is basically all the bank is as well. But uh, I do think that Lightning is, it's amazing, it's unique, and it's never been done before in the history of money and that you can actually lock Bitcoin and then immediately transact with it in a less secure but more amazing way. And it's locked. Like it's a, it's locked on the main chain. There's some fees you got to pay to work that out. And that's a question still and ease of use and all the rest. But there's never been the case where you can lock base money, basically lock it in place. Everybody sees it, you know, where it is. It's just like, you know, locking gold or something. Um, instead of locking it in a vault and trading paper, you're actually trading little pieces of it, but, you know, a representation of it. It's not a representation of it, but it's hard to describe this stuff in lightning, you know, sometimes in, in the traditional thing. But it is locked. It is absolutely locked on the main chain. Fully and reserved. You don't want to, want to call it a note. What would it be? Like, um... uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, Peter Todd actually said this. I always use it in the presentations as well. It's a middle ground. It's a middle ground. It's not fully a uh, claim. It's not fully a claim like a banker's check, like a credit card, debit card, Venmo payment. All that stuff is a, is a, is a claim. That's why, again, Base money, everything else is a claim. That's why it's simple. Bitcoin, everything else is a claim. Exchanges are claims. Uh, so it's not fully a claim, but it's also not fully under your control. There is a potential security risk. There's a potential risk with fees. Everything's you might not get it back once you depeg. So it's a middle ground. He, he uses the word a middle ground state, which is amazing. I think that's like that's, that's like a perfect way to describe it. It's a middle ground state where it's not. There's just I look at things very similar. Like I know there's M1, M2, M3. There's claims and there's base money. Lightning is somewhere in between. Anyway, uh, I, I do want to get back to your question about Seljan because um, I've seen this as well, and and I, I like him. I like his scholarship. I like Larry White's as well. Our listeners probably know. You know, he's the first one that we interviewed. External guest. I would still say that the interview that we did. My it's our very first episode with a guest. <clears throat> if you can find it, uh, he. Uh, he he gives great we, we talk a lot about money credit bitcoin the differences all that stuff which you know again just trying to educate and understand the stuff for myself as well so i thought that was actually one of my favorite episodes that we've done but uh i, I don't i can't get inside of his head I, I have he's been on a second time we've talked to him a little bit about some of his things he ended that first episode in in one way which i think is very important because i said like you know what what is the role uh, like explain sorry i asked the question to him in the first the very first episode that we did i said when we talk about money you know uh it's just different again like economics is hubris there's all this stuff right but in in something like give me a comparison so like in physics we have the physicists that are like theoretical they do their equations they do their formulas they have to balance they have to this that, that. but like really in reality like what we care about when we want to live get on with our day it's the engineers that make things work right like an engineer does not have to have an exact 90 degree angle for like the house not to fall down right i mean it's you know it's, it's not have to be exact you know, like pure pristine, like how long is a meter? Like how long is a second? Like these things don't have to be exactly correct. They can still work. Society can still work, right? So in physics, the theoretical realm is physics. The real realm is engineering, as I see. Like explain to me, Dr. Selgin, what do you see? How would you make that comparison with, with money? 
And he agreed with me, said, I see where you're going. And I would say, he would say, yes. He, he said all this. He said, it's certainly not governments. It's certainly not economists. It's certainly not, um, you know, it, it, he's, he and I compared economists to physicists in that example, right? Because they're the theoretical ones, they're the ones that do the equations, this and that. But it, it, he said, as far as actually the system, making this monetary system better, it's not the physicists. It's it's not the economists. It's, it's certainly not governments. He said those words. Uh, it's it's as you said. He says it's the engineers, or it's you know, it's it's extracting extra gold from from the mine using cyanide, or you know, doesn't sound very environmental friendly for their woke some woke uh, haters these days. But like, there are many things that happen in the monetary world. Um, claim banking basically uh fractional reserve banking is one of those as well which i don't have a problem with but then we'll table that for another discussion uh it is the it is the engineers the creative people the business people that make money work in reality it's certainly not economists it's certainly not governments like they're not the ones that make things uh work which is something i completely agree with so i would i would keep that frame of reference in mind and then you watch some of these tweets or things that these economists say sometimes about Bitcoin. I see where he's going. Like, I know the tweets you're alluding to and, uh, you know, cause you sent them to me and I, like, I know, I know, um, the, uh, we sent me some, I didn't actually see the ones where you interacted with him, but I read his, I read his, uh, yeah, he had that, he had that thread where he's just trying to say Bitcoin will never become money cause it's got to compete with the dollar, which, like money adoption comes down to network effects. You're never going to overcome the dollar's network effect. And yeah. I think that's just so like, here, yeah. So, so, so again, like on our show, he's told me like, it's not going to be like the economists or the governments they're going to do this. And, and I look at the dollar as a government thing. Yeah. The government could go away. The dollar would still function absolutely as money for a time. It would, I mean, the Somali shilling did this in the nineties, Somali shilling, uh, was just going around like, you know, pirates and bandits using it. And there was no Somali central bank. It's an, it's an experiment in economics. It's worked. You don't need a government to have it work. So the dollar could work without the government, but I, I look at the dollar as a government project, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's government that that's, that's putting this stuff together, whether you're talking about national defense or the quality of our treasuries or whatever, which are always an asset. If you hold them liability to the government, um, the, the point that I'm getting to here is that, um, he's talking about these like big picture things about money and Bitcoin. Like he's, like he knows that the dollar is definitely an insurmountable giant that just can't be overtaken. But, you know, he, I don't know. He knows as well as anybody. I mean, there hasn't every hundred years or so there's that has happened. Like the dollar overtook the pound a hundred years ago before that. Uh, the Dutch had the reserve currency before that. You know, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Peseta de Ocho uh, was one of the most popular floating, uh, uh, freely floating pieces of silver around Latin America. Um, so there are a lot of like, and, and these are, they are government, uh, government currency, yeah. yeah, government issued currencies, but that there's been one over the last, you know, couple hundred years. So like, I, I don't really necessarily see why he takes a stand that the dollars network effect needs to be, or is insurmountable just because it's the dollar or just because it's huge, because that's the argument that I would, that I seem to get that he was taking that stance. Yeah, it's perplexing. It's like, how do you expect Bitcoin to develop that network effect overnight? Yeah. 12 years even. Like, it's going to take 12, time, 12 right? years. 
Exactly. It's going to take time. I mean, it's already remarkable. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. It's number six. I mean, it's number six right now. Uh, seven, if you include gold. But if you don't include gold, if you don't include gold, you have... Uh, let's go in the let's go in the ranking of monetary bases we have now. We have the euro is in, in U.S. dollar equivalent is more euros represented out there uh, units uh, as far as value goes. You have the euro, the dollar, then the yen, then the yuan, then the pound, and then Bitcoin. That's it. I mean, it's passed as of last year. As of, oh, sorry, as of this year, as of February, it passed the Swiss franc. That was a major one, major, major. It actually passed it on Musk's tweet, his original tweet back in February about Tesla using Bitcoin. Um, hasn't gone down below it when Tesla made their other comments about Bitcoin and energy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's it's number six, which is very interesting. And again, I, I even saw something he said, like, oh, I know there's a lot of Bitcoiners saying that, oh, it's bigger than Venezuela or whatever. And it is, but you know, they still got to get in line behind the dollar. I agree. I mean, the network effect of the dollar, both base money and of claims that are people that have contracts derived in dollars, euro dollars that are dollars that are held abroad, dollars meaning accounts, not actual physical dollars, because we're showing the physical dollars in our in our exhibit. Um I don't know what to say. I mean, like, of course, of course, the dollar is is the large it's been the largest network effect affected currency for the last 100 years um it's going at some point i just don't think that it can continue forever especially look at the jokers that come in and out of government these days yeah and uh, well you're already seeing its network effect wane a bit and you have the prize states russia china Iran. they're beginning to settle their exports in euro to go into euro um, another reason to, to show the euro itself is a powerful currency Again, I, I don't know why the euro shouldn't be in there or Japan as well. Again, it's a very internal currency in Japan, but still, um, you know, there are, I think it's important. This is also another thing I want to say, like, I, I'm like, if you want to be an economist and make these prognostications and you want to make some, I don't know, even predictions, I guess, go for it. But that's just not my, not my bag. I m much more enjoy educating, tracking, uh, finding the actual thing describing it in real economic, legal, and accounting terms, and then trying to educate people about that. And then Bitcoiners, they're so grateful with their time and education of everybody else anyway, they're going to spread it, they're going to talk about it, and they, you know make your own decisions that way. So like, I think, I think it's just going to be natural, organic, but um, there, yeah, there's plenty of like, there's another guy. Uh, so those like three of the guys that kind of did this modern free banking schools, Dr. Selgin, Dr. White, there's another guy named Kevin Dowd. He, um, English, I guess, I think he's, English, or is he, I think he's English. Anyway, uh, he, um, he was talking back in the G hash days about how <laughs> Bitcoin was going to suffer from mining centralization and the whole project was doomed and all this. And I don't know if he should be saying this, but I was talking to Dr. Selgin and he was telling me that like, you know, I was not a fan of him saying that, right? Like I was, you know, I was just coming to my role as Cato. Like I was, you know, Selgin's a nice, like proper guy. Um, he was like, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting there next to Kevin. He's just like trying to, you know, we're looking for monetary alternatives and Kevin's like just demonizing Bitcoin. And obviously that was wrong. These are days like 2014, 2015. Obviously that was way wrong. So for anybody who's relatively new to Bitcoin, the G-hash story, what we're describing here uh, in 2014, 2015, I forget what it was, uh, G hash was a mining pool. It amassed more than 50% of the network hash rate. I think it got up to 55 
Um, and obviously that makes the network susceptible to a 51% attack. People are freaking out. Peter Todd, who we mentioned earlier, famously um, came out and was like, all right, this may be it. I believe he sold some Bitcoin too at that point. Um, but great case study in decentralization and the natural incentives built into Bitcoin. The hash rate on Ghash collapsed basically overnight. Miners went to other mining pools to to make sure that the network was not susceptible to a 51% attack. Right, right. And I, I only use that example because, again, this is someone supposedly, supposedly in the same ilk, same school. I, I've read some of his writings, enjoy them. He appreciates free decentralized banking in the olden days, which is absent of the central bank. I appreciate that as well. I think there's a lot of great scholarship there. There's great things to learn. Uh, unfortunately, what we have found always, and maybe this gets into the, sort of the end of your questions, like how does Bitcoin fit in or what can we do? Or, you know, how does Bitcoin fit in a free bank system? Like, I think it's impossible. Basically, sorry, what is impossible is I think it's impossible to have a free banking system based on the reality that we've seen over the last few hundred years. I mean, if you have a system that works well, if it's in Sweden or Scotland or Canada or the Caribbean or somewhere like, you know, remote, you can make some moats and you can make some uh, interesting little experiments. But, you know, whether it has to do with national security, uh, spending, debt, your bigger neighbor, war, uh, which is typically, which is a scary thing to talk about now. Hopefully cooler heads will prevail. But if there's a, if there's something that these powers that be don't like, and, and Scotland and Canada, particularly good examples, I talk about this, Nick, as well, like Britain, England was below, you know, just south of Scotland, same thing, US just south of uh, Canada. Both of these systems were running beautifully for hundreds of years in, in either case. And they were free of, of central banking and they eventually just succumbed to it. They couldn't, they couldn't keep it up. They had to, they had to start their own central banks. They had to join the central bank in the case of Scotland. And, uh, and that was it. So I, I think it's impossible to go back to any sort of a fiat system. Gold has been tried, you know, the Austrians, Mises, Rothbard, they were so fond of gold. They loved gold. There are a lot of Bitcoiners that love gold. I like gold. I have no problem with gold, but a lot of people, you know, take it too far. There is only one shot as far as I can tell that's left as far as a free sovereign, um, decentralized system where you can truly control your money and not have to worry about it being shut down or capital controls or KYC AML or whatever. Um, but it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle. I'm, I'm saying nothing new here. I know you've talked about it with plenty of your guests on your show and we're trying to educate people about it. Uh, like I said, I, I would take the route of diversify a little bit, try to you know get it, open up dialogue with your bank about Bitcoin. I don't know if, if your bank really hates Bitcoin or if it's like, like, I don't know if B of A still hates Bitcoin or like Chase might be on some services. But like these, obviously these banks have been typically averse to Bitcoin in the past. Just move banks. I don't know. You know, it's it's not going to get any better from that side. Digital currencies are starting. This is another thing. Uh, there is a proto digital currency in Brazil. It's called the PIX account. Uh, Fernando didn't actually point out, a, a listener did, a very uh, kind of him to, sh to show that it's actually started. There's this kind of, it's not a blockchain based, you know, whatever that even means, blockchain based cryptocurrency that's state backed, CBDC. But it's it's a centrally controlled app that you open on your phone and it's working. And Brazil is a major economy, and so they're actually doing it. You know, I, I, like China's like rolling it out. They're doing it. They're going to do it. But like the, like that's that's actually a proto CBDC that's actually working. I expect CBDCs to continue. I'm ready for them. I'm ready for them on my exhibit. Uh, CBDCs will be a part of it. I'm prepared. I'm I'm ready for banks to start reserving Bitcoin. I'm ready for central banks to start reserving Bitcoin. I'm ready for all this. So uh, I know. Yeah. 
you had a Fed official come out this week, I believe, and say that the Fed plans to launch a CBDC open source. They're going to open source the code um, and implementation. Yeah, that works. Implementation. And that's another thing. I, like again, I wish I had a uh, need to need to talk to Peter Todd or someone about this. Like the technological side of this is is just baffling to me. I mean, how how could it be that uh, if it is if it is somewhat exposed? electronically like the, the the balances of these currencies floating around whether it be password protected or what i mean these things are going to get hacked they're going to get hacked right. well or bitcoin's going to get hacked so that's another risk from those but they're going to happen they're going to try that's why they're doing it slowly we'll see what happens with brazil's currency here it started it started in like november um so i'm ready for it i'm tracking them uh i would just say you know keep your eye on the ball look at real numbers don't listen to gobbledygook people that don't you know, understand the definitions of these things or just trying to like, I don't know, sway you for whatever strange reason. Like, I don't even know the skin in the game that some of these people have that are no corners. Like what, what are they getting like daily updates from the treasury, you know, or, you know, the central government to tell them to say things. I, I don't know why it, it means so much to them. If they don't like Bitcoin, just stop talking about it and move on. But yeah, it's again, like, is it like the concept of the, elite overproduction is it something like they some of these people don't like seeing plebs the common man take part in this they need to be the the arbor that's what i that's the sense i get from selgins of the world and and like the the mainstream economists the matt levine's the not that he's an economist but joe weisenthal sure. and, and others like i didn't create this like there's no way some anon on the internet could create like the new global reserve currency and all these shit posters yeah. in the basements are are participating in getting rich off of it there's no way my my priors have taught me that this is not the way the world works and yeah. it's just fucking with people's brains yeah so i i'll read it i'd like to see your interaction i bring it back to selgin and your original question like uh I'm still giving him the benefit of the doubt as far as uh, I know he's open to it. I just think he has some very entrenched, even though he said on my show, you know, it's certainly not governments. It's certainly not economists that are come up with these monetary revolutions and, and support the monetary He said that. And I, and I, he said that humbly, which I, I believe that he has. Uh, humility. Compa yeah. Humility compared to many other economists, certainly state run economists. Uh, no, I mean, I've seen Dr. Selgin. I saw him in her, uh, excuse me, not an interview, but debate safe at the Soho forum a few years ago. And I thought it was a very earnest and interesting back and forth. I do think safe won the debate. And like, so like the context of our totally first, agree. our first interaction was, yeah, you were at that debate. Uh, the, that was uh, Larry White. White. Uh, what's his name? Um, Rogoff, or was it the other one? It yeah, that Rogoff? was Rogoff and White. Yeah, that's the one you were at. But Selgin and Save debated as well. Yeah. Um, I saw it. Yeah, Dr. Selgin's, he basically said there's no way Bitcoin can compete with the US dollar network effect. Like, it would have to be. Same song, same swan song. Yep. It, would, it would have to be like, like an, a massive improvement. I just quote to it, it was like Bitcoin. It is a step function improvement on the US dollar reserve system in the sense that it's scarce. It's a distributed peer to peer scarce cash system. So it beats it on policy where you have a cap supply and then it beats it on centrality um, where it's distributed compared to the dollar. So those are two step function improvements. And then 
the network, the digital aspect of it, like being able to create lightning and, and transfer this stuff globally uh, instantly, well, not instantly, but settlement time compared to final settlement in the traditional financial system is orders of magnitude better and quicker. It bounces its budget every 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then he came back with like, we're, we're working on instant set final settlement within the traditional system. And I was just yeah, like, that's, that's strange to me. That's strange to me. I, I don't, uh, it's like my wire, my recent wire transfers would beg to differ. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he keeps trying to hedge like from what I read in those, that tweet, sweet thread that you sent me, like, you know, saying that I'm, I am a fan of Bitcoin. I hope it succeeds, but of course it's up against this and this, like, he knows better than anybody that this stuff happens shifts it's juggernaut type stuff it takes 100 years you know our currency can switch over 100 years might not take 100 years but it switches every 100 years and um it's just logical where we are in the digital age and everything but you know i'm more i'm more concerned so anyway i i don't know I, he does what he does and he's an economist um yeah, you don't have to speak on behalf of him no no i just say because i know you you know that i like his scholarship and i've been you know, I do. I would encourage people to read it. I like a scholarship too. I would yeah. encourage people to read it too. It's like yeah. very important work. Yeah. But the, uh, but then, but then it is, which is it's funny because going back to that pod, like he said, it's certainly not governments, it's certainly not economists that are going to come up with these innovations. It's the engineers, it's the developers. But he doesn't talk like that when it, when it comes down to it. He's still, he's still talking the points of, of the economists from on high, really. I mean, from the economists in the beltway, from the economists uh, working with the Federal Reserve. So um, we'll see. We'll see what those, uh, if he changes his tune, but um, I don't, I don't find anything interesting in following the next innovation of the Federal Reserve. I'd rather just track the monetary base and then follow the innovations of Bitcoin because it's so much clearly better money and you have more control of it more sovereignty and you know if you want to dip your toe into or keep your toe in the existing financial system like i said keep working with your bank try to get them involved in bitcoin try to uh you know just just establish that dialogue but like there's just so many options now it's it's amazing it's absolutely amazing where where we are yeah god you mentioned rogoff and now i want to ask you a question about nerp <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Again, before we get to NERP, before we get to to ZERP and NERP and all of this goofy, you know, shenanigan type stuff, huge, huge treasury balances with central banks, um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, the uh, the the bottom line, as far as uh, as far as I can tell, there is that it, it comes back to the money supply. I mean, monetary policy is about is about the money supply. So they're going to tell you like, okay, it's, it's about unemployment. It's about controlling prices. They can give you their own definition of prices. It's, it's, it's this, it has to be this, right? I mean, it maybe it's a little bit, there's a margin for error, this and that, but it is this, it's where it needs to be. Those are all, those are all steps below. And, and I would, I would argue, uh, confusing steps below on purpose to confuse the public, like talking points. Again, the fed is independent all these things, talk, talking points from these journalists and from these, whoever they're taking their, their notes from, their cues from. None of that is as important as the money supply itself, which they solely have control of. And then, of course, that relationship with the central bank is putting a floor of price on their bonds, buying their bonds when no one else will buy their bonds. 
therefore increasing the price of bonds, lowering the interest rate of bonds, which will lower the rate of debt that they have to pay back. Those are the most important things when it comes to money supply. It's that, it's that symbiotic relationship between the central bank and the government. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. We can't end it. Like this is, you know, I was railing about this in my twenties. Did me no good. Um, like, you know, there's no reason to talk about it. We had Bitcoin. So, uh, I, I honestly, like when someone shows me, it talks about like NERP or something in, in Europe versus the U S what I was just, I show them a picture of the monetary base of both. So like, it's just, you know, this is, this is what you need. This is the supply. This is the actual supply of money. Like, don't talk to me about the interest rate. I don't care what some bank that's connected to uh, the Danish central bank, who's, you know, might be getting some money actually to borrow or whatever. I don't care what they're getting and what that is doing to the economy. I care about the value of the money in my pocket and the money supply is what's going to affect that. So show me the money supply. Don't show me the interest rate. I don't care about the interest rate, the target rate, all that stuff. That's just, it's secondary. It's, uh, it's sort of a don't look over here, you know, what the hand is doing. Like it's it's just it's it's secondary stuff. Money supply as Bitcoin again shines that spotlight. That's that's where the action is at. Well, especially because like that interest rate is only a target and they try to reach that target by manipulating the money supply. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no one says that anymore. Like they, they reach the target by manipulating the monetary base. It has everything to do with the money supply with interest rates, uh, you know, with like the, the, the money supply is the, the crux of the matter. It's the source. It's the, you know, you can't go any further back and, uh, it would be great if we didn't have central banks manipulating the money supply, causing these price controls, causing, uh, boom and bust cycles. It'd be great if we didn't have it, but unfortunately we do. There's, you know, national security, welfare, all these sorts of, you know, politicking comes in. You can't get away from these discussions. Unfortunately, um, they're clearly dependent on each other. It's a symbiotic relationship. They're not independent. The, the central bank is never independent. It's obvious. And uh, yeah, just look at the money supply. If you want, if you want to worry about the value of the dollar in your wallet, or the yen in your wallet, or the euro in your wallet, uh, look at the money supply. And you know that's the only economic statement that I make. Ceteris paribus, ceteris paribus. Your rising money supply is always going to uh, lead to an increase in prices. Well, freaks, Matthew is diligently tracking the money supply over at Crypto Voices. Where can we find out more about you, your updates? Well, thanks, Marty. Yeah, I mean, least I can do compared to what some of the real developers and people are doing out there in Bitcoin. CryptoVoices.com, CryptoVoices.com. Uh, I've said this again, people are just a broken record. It will get better. It will get faster. It's going to be awesome. Hopefully get a little subscription site going as well for some uh, dedicated listeners to actually... Uh, you know, see this a little bit better and more, more intuitive, more interactive cryptovoices.com slash base money for what we talk about. And then we have a uh, podcast as well, uh, sporadically at the moment. I've said this many times, my favorite Bitcoin economics podcast out there. I learn a lot from your podcast and I always learn from our conversation. So thank you for your time this evening, where you are this morning, where I am. And, uh, can't wait to do it again, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brother. Really appreciate it. It's great. Peace and love, freaks.